Well, hello and welcome to episode number 335 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's News Packs show, a European airline bailouts hit 26.6 billion. We've got a story on American Airlines that hands out one million pounds of food to those in need. And also we've got the birth of the Boeing 707. It was no secret. Everyone knew. And also special segments coming up this week on the show. We've got an Ian Palmer interview. And also we've got the plain truths coming back with the highways in the sky. So joining me this week in the PTUK Master Studio it is, of course, the man who never stresses about anything technical. <laughs> it's Matt Smith. Oh, if only that was true. If only that was true. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm good. Good. A bit, bit, bit flustered. It's a bit late getting into yes, uh, my home studio this had, evening. Had a bit of a rush around, haven't you? Absolutely. Are you, miss, are you missing the PT UK studio, by the way? I, I tell you what, I am. Silly Matt. COVID nonsense. I am. I yeah, am. But, uh, but technically, I, I may well come and join you at some point <gasps> soon. You never. Ooh. You never know, absolutely not. I'll not right now, I think. Like I say, there's a few restrictions being applied at the oh, moment, so pa- yeah. perhaps not. Perhaps not this week, anyway. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll stick to these separate studios. For absolutely. Now. Actually, do you know what? All jokes aside, I've actually been really pleased at how well this whole sort of remote doing the show has has been. Really, it's. Uh, yeah, it's been it's pretty, pretty. Although I'm the only one who hasn't had a week off since this all started, I should I, should, I would like to point that out. Um, <laughs> no, loving okay. loving the audio in the background. There is it, the fade is coming down. Uh, what, what's that? Sorry, the BTUK theme too. I can. Hear oh, is it? Oh, all right. Okay. In my ear. Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> there you go. I'll shut it up now. <laughs> it's because we're missing John this week. He's not our voice in the ear as he usually is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have been told off about fifteen point. times already. I know. Yeah. Okay. Don't so, go, don't dob me into him. I'll get an email. Stop uh, it. I know. I know. <laughs> He's probably listening in secret anyway. <laughs> Joining us uh, this week, you over in sunny and, and sw- uh, sunny and swinging Buckinghamshire is, of course, <laughs> the awesome man that is the the head of everything technical and and audio and visual. It is, of course, Neville Bounds. Yeah, hi, Carlos. Hope you're well. Thanks very much indeed. Yes, it's been an interesting day today. Went into London uh, mm. for the first time on the train. Oh, uh, which is oh. and you, you're here. Experience. Yes. <laughs> yes. And how was that, uh, Mr. Pounds? Well, on, on the main line, but it was all right. But uh, yeah, wearing a mask on the tube is not a lot of fun, I have to say. Uh, no. But uh, it was just like going in on a Sunday morning. It was hardly anyone there at all. Really. So. Yeah, absolutely incredible. So, um, yeah, there was, was, was there lots of social of, distancing going on there? Plenty of it, although there was a bit, bit of stroppiness at, at Marylebone Station due to a few people not following the rules, <gasps> and uh, those fine folks of Chiltern Railways were enforcing them. They were not taking no for an answer, uh, which uh, led to a bit of interesting uh, comment and conversation. However, we have lived to tell the tale, and I've returned ready for another great show tonight. Oh, Excellent. Good. Always good to have you uh, on, Nev, as always. This week, uh, Armando can't be with us, unfortunately. He has had... Actually, Armando, I spoke to him last night. He's had an incredibly busy week. He's been doing not just flying, but a heck of a lot of driving uh, to and from airports. Uh, So Armando, unfortunately, won't be with us this week. But he has sent in some bits for military, so that's awesome. So that's coming up later. Uh, But we do have a special guest joining us on tonight's show. So he is the group editor of commercial aviation with key publishing, including Airliner World, Airports of the World, and Air International magazines. Other past work includes BBC News broadcast journalist, London 2012 Olympics communication assistant, communications roles at the United Nations, 
and Key Publishing, the company he currently works for, was founded in 1980 in December and independently owned and producing over 25 magazines, digital editions, website, books, and much more. Their multimedia brands are now read in over 200 countries in six different languages, and Airliner World was launched in 1999. I know because I'm a reader of said <laughs> Press. So we welcome onto the show Gordon Smith. Good evening. How's it going? Very good, Gordon, and uh, well, welcome into the uh, uh, well realms of uh, aviation podcasting. I'm is this the first time you've uh, been on a podcast of aviationers? No stranger to a microphone, but uh, first time on an aviation podcast. So, uh, oh, the pleasure I, is mine. I, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, how are things in the world of uh, global aviation journalism, kind of things, uh, Gordon? I think if you were to pick two industries that were having a really tough time right now, aviation would certainly be one of them. Publishing would probably be another. Mm. Um, yeah, a huge number of our readers get the magazine still in the traditional way. They go down to the shop and buy it, either because they like it or because they don't want a subscription or because, yeah, whatever, whatever reason it might be. Um, and when the shops are closed, then that means the magazines aren't quite as easy to uh, pick up as they once were. So... Uh, Certainly our, our readers have been letting us know if they haven't been able to find the magazine and we've been doing our best to, to try and get them to the nearest stockist or to try and get a, a copy directly out to them. But it's been a, it's been a torrid time all around. Uh, and we've been really working very, very hard behind the scenes to try and keep the, the levels of quality that our readers expect uh, up. So we carefully curated a plan about this time last year looking at what 2020 was going to hold for the magazine, for the brands, everything else. And, how did, that, right and how, did, how did that go, Gordon? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it, it's not even worth the paper it's written on now. It's, uh, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll go into more detail later. But yeah, absolutely, it's, uh, yeah, absolutely. So we're going to say uh, a big uh, thanks and hello to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. Uh, all the usual family members in there, including Auntie Liz over in Canada. Hello to you, Richard Adams. Uh, Stephen H is also in there. Lane Street. Uh, Masha is in there. Hello to you, Masha. Uh, Alan White, hello to you, uh, Alan. Uh, we've got, just scrolling down, Lib Libux, I think I was pronounced that correctly, uh, is in there. Myla, hello to you, Myla. Wave. And Tony S, hello to you, Tony. Our main man, Micah, over in uh, Portland, Maine, is in the chat room as well. John Jester, hello to you, John Jester. And Stuart Aslett has just popped in chat room as well so hello to you Stuart so thanks for joining us there today and don't forget as well if you are listening to the audio version of the podcast and want to join in the fun that is the YouTube chat room uh, go over to our YouTube page hit the subscribe button and don't forget to click on the bell icon which is right next to the uh, the subscribe button to be notified when we go live and we're recording new episodes because well let's be safe here we want all we want you to come in the chat room and uh, join us and you know fill in the blanks because we have plenty of those on the show when we get things wrong but we don't often get things wrong i will say to the guys you know <laughs> well, at least 50 percent. that's it. the that's the number well, we hope for isn't it <laughs> i would have said 60 oh I say. <laughs> anyway come on before we get told off we better so we've on. got uh, a special <laughs> intro because it is obviously uh, a very poignant time uh, of the year a special date that it is uh, today mm. and uh, we've got something haven't we matt that's uh, been sent uh, to us by armando to yeah. play out on the show absolutely yeah Let, let's have a listen to that first 
Hey guys, I'm really sorry I can't be on the show this week as I'm scheduled to fly, not just today, but the next few Fridays. I just wanted to take a moment to remember today on September 11th how that day changed not only the aviation landscape, but all of our personal and professional lives. The weeks just after 9-11 really showed the positivity of a world united, and especially nowadays with the worldwide pandemic it's important to reflect upon the amazing things that we can all do when we work together. So I know for me that day shaped the next 18 years of my career and I'm incredibly thankful and grateful for the experience that I gained in a post-9-11 military. So I hope you have a great show. I can't wait to hear about our special guests' great contributions to the aviation enthusiast community through the magazine. Uh, Have a great weekend, guys. Take care. Thank you, Armando, for sending that in. We've got a little bit to, to read as well. And uh, I suppose for most of us, we can remember what we were doing uh, probably on that day. I know I can. 19 years ago today, to the day, September the 11th, tax took place against the USA. That Tuesday morning, four flights each bound for California took off from Boston Logan International Airport, Newark Liberty International Airport, and Washington, D.C. Dallas International Airport. Those flights, American Airlines Flight 11, United Airlines Flight 175, American Airlines Flight 77, and United Airlines Flight 93. 245 innocent passengers and crew members aboard those flights were among the almost 3,000 killed and the over 6,000 injured that day. 343 firefighters, 72 law enforcement, and 55 military personnel perished, and another 2,000 have since died due to illnesses relating to 9-11. Many of us remember where we were and what we were doing as the world watched in horror when the plane struck the towers. The events of 9-11 shaped the world over. They influenced economies, wars, industries, and governments. They changed how we view air travel, security and protection against threats of terrorism. Today we remember all those victims, their families and the bravery of those who fought to protect all lives on that day, on the ground and in later years both in the US and further abroad. May we never see again such needless loss of life, such cruel hatred or such savage brutality in the world. Indeed. So... As, as, uh, just just uh, as a by the by, I mean, uh, uh, I, uh, about five, six years ago, I went to uh, New York, actually, to go and have a look. Um, uh, well, we were there actually working, and uh, we did actually go to, you know, ground zero. Um, I, I think that's the correct term, isn't it, um, that they, they refer to there. And I must admit, it's one of, the, one of the few places, I mean, if anybody's been to New York, you, you know it's a real hubbub of an, and hive of activity. Um, mm. But it's something quite weirdly tranquil about being in the middle of a large city like that um with the memorial and stuff there and if anybody hasn't been uh, and you are in new york i strongly recommend a visit actually i don't know have, have you guys been at all uh no i haven't uh but um yeah i i think one of the things that it's easy to forget isn't it, it is the thing that carl was right out it's the um we, we know about the the casualties and the fatalities on the day but it's those additional uh, fatalities and injuries that the 343 firefighters, 72 law enforcement officers and 55 military personnel, plus another 2,000 have died uh, due to illness relating to 9-11. And those people should never be forgotten either, I don't think. Have you been, Gordon, to uh, the site? 
I have. I've seen it in various sort of situs, if you like. I was there in 2006 and then later 2010 and then recently, just last year. And it's been quite harrowing, actually, to see the the transformation of, mm-hmm. of the site and how long it took uh, just to return to a degree of normality. And I stress that degree, like you said, yeah. Carlos, it's a, a portion of Manhattan that was once thriving lower downtown. And it is. You only have to go a block or two away from it to go back to the usual busy streets that we all know and love in New York so famous for. But when you do get to Ground Zero itself and the, the immediate vicinity, it's, uh, it's like flicking a switch. It is, uh, it's a different place. It's very uh, eerie, but... isn't it, actually? It's sort of, you know, it sort of takes your breath away a bit, doesn't it, when you, when you, when you turn up there? It does, they, but they, they've done a fantastic job of trying to, you know, re- you know recreate the, the spirits and recreate the memories and recreate what, what we all love New York for in the streets around it. So there's still hotels that are where you'd expect them to be and still shops where you expect them to be. But when you do get to that immediate block, um, everything changes, and it's really quite a quite a breathtaking space. Um, I remember the the fountain or the, the water feature around um, in Boston. The stone they've got the names of those who lost their lives that day. Yes, it's um, it, visually, if nothing else, it's spectacular. It's uh, really a very very special place, and it's it, it probably isn't right to call it a, a tourist attraction. Although I know there is a museum and there's other there's other spin off elements, but. Uh, Really, it's just a place to go and just have a quiet piece of uh, solitude. Yeah. And I, I certainly make sure I visit on every, every time I go and just pay yeah. my respects. Likewise. And actually, one of the other things that, that I found particularly chilling, I suppose, for want of a better word, is obviously because there's a lot of fire sort of stations dotted around that area. And each fire station has its own sort of uh, memorial, obviously, because, I mean, I don't think there was a fire service in New York that wasn't touched by some form of tragedy off uh, the back end, uh, back end of this. And also, as you say, law enforcement as well. I mean, it's, uh, it, it is, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a place that everybody, I think, needs to, to make sure they visit. I will once I can get a flight across there. I think that'll be on the list of. Yes, that that may be your your biggest challenge in the current climate, to be honest. But uh, yes, so anyway. um, we are going to start the show then, as we do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if everyone's ready, yeah, let's go. <laughs> So kicking off this week's first news story, this one is on flightglobal.com. And the headline, European airline bailouts hit 26.6 billion euros. So European governments have provided the uh, continent continent airlines with nearly 26.6 billion euros or 31.5 billion dollars in assistance throughout the coronavirus crisis. Underlining the value regulators place on connectivity carriers provide, according to a report from the HSBC. The figure is equivalent to 46% of the airline's market capitalism at December 2019, or 21% of the company's pre-COVID-19 full-year revenues for 2019, not including funds carriers accessed 
through furlough job retention schemes. State assistance was made available despite airlines often being held in low regard in many countries prior to the crisis and reflects the value that governments place on carriers' role in enabling trade and exports, including for healthcare products and PPE, as well as being enablers for tourism and providing employment. He said, we think that many governments came to value uh, the connectivity offered by airlines once their continuing existence was called into question, writes the HSBC. The bank says it believes the emphasis among regulators is shifting away from ensuring competitive aviation markets towards stability. For example, uh, the while state aid has been made available to many countries, largest airline groups, it was not forthcoming to Virgin Atlantic Airways or Virgin Australia. Uh, France has also refused assistance for secondary airlines. HSB says that we think governments were judging that global connectivity is something that is valued and needs defending, but that providing funds to secure a competitive aviation market post-pandemic is not a priority for government resources. Concerns were raised at the time that state aid being provided to airlines could create zombie companies operating under government influence, blocking the market for stronger, more efficient competitors. HSBC believes there is no evidence of that taking place. They said that we expect carriers in receipt of state aid to be motivated to restructure, to moderate their capacity, seeking to generate cash flows and create platform that will support the necessary raising of fresh private capital to escape the major burden of state debt. Thus, they will not block the market for growing businesses in our view, they said. It notes that looking at where state directors have been put in place on company boards, they have generally been sensible choices and that the competence of corporate governments has largely stayed the same throughout the crisis. That's a heck of a lot of money, um, but mm. obviously, you know, there's still a heck of a lot of people losing jobs within the industry. I mean, well, this is, and I don't think this is the end of it, is it? I think, uh, mm. you know, unless, I mean, I, I still think bailouts would be required, even if, like, it was decided that from tomorrow onwards, everybody could go back to how things were, you know, pre pre these conditions. I mean, you know, there's a an awful. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's not just aviation either, is it? I mean, it, or several industries are are really suffering. I mean, you know, even even as as Gordon was saying, like you know, the magazine industry is sort of on its knees because you know, COVID put a lot of restrictions in place. I mean, it's. Uh, I think a lot of people thought that the large airlines, you know, the big state airlines ba and virgin mm. all the big ones would be safe and there'd be you know be no mm. issues and it, it would be the smaller airlines that would go and and you know and sort of disappear but you know when you we've obviously seen in the news over the last few weeks it's the big airlines as well that are being yeah, everybody's struggling aren't they just I, I, th- I think I, I don't know perhaps i perhaps i'm speaking out of turn and um, maybe nev or, or gordon can correct me here but I, I do sometimes wonder the bigger the airline you are almost the harder the hit if you see what I mean, because yeah, I mean of... the, the the overhead associated with them is massive, of course. And in terms of revenue, those uh, big names, you know, BA, Air France, Lufthansa, and uh, Scandinavian, and a few others as well, they need to sell those business class and first class tickets to make the whole thing work. Yeah, uh, yeah. Lots of people flying in economy um, without the. Uh, the boys and girls at the front of the airplane uh, to make it work it just doesn't work and of course with massive restrictions on business travel in fact almost a a complete uh, halt on business travel mm. that's where the the revenue shortage is coming from but of course you still need all the maintenance you still need all the ground handling yeah. crew and everything else that goes with it indeed 
completely agree now. It's, yeah, it's possible to furlough staff. It's regrettable, but it's possible. You can mothball a plane, but there's still these overhead costs, which are unbearably high. Yeah. And like you said, the larger the airline, the more of them you've got, which yeah. is great in the boom times. But uh, they very, very quickly go from being an asset to a liability. Absolutely. And, 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 and of course, you know, the whole thing in, the, in this current climate, isn't it? I mean, you, 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 you know, these companies are hemorrhaging money um, left, right and centre. As you say, you can fur if you're in the UK, you can furlough staff and things. But I know, so, you know, if we, if we go to places like Dubai, for example, I mean, there's a couple of big carriers out there that, where, you know, perhaps you aren't getting the, the government agent. They're just letting go staff, aren't they? I mean, this is just it's it's just it's just awful, isn't it? It's not a great place for anyone or anything right now to do with aviation. But I think I would hope that uh, consumers, even your sort of slightly more general consumer who maybe doesn't quite get aviation the same way that many people listening and many people watching do, will remember the way that airlines have treated not just their customers, but also their staff. Yeah. So, you know, there are, you know, as a customer myself, you know, I had plans booked for this summer. I know who's refunded me relatively quickly and who has been smart with communication. I know who's been dragging their heels, who's been difficult to get a hold of, who's kept me waiting uh, on the phone. And I think that that will be extended, hopefully, to how they've been treating their staff. Airlines that drop loyal staff with, you know, really, you know, up to two, three decades experience, yeah. uh, drop of a hat, whereas those who have been trying best they can to hold on, but obviously decisions will be made, uh, at a boardroom level, I hope that all of that will come together and people will remember who's treated their staff as well as the customer as well. That's true. Actually, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought of that, actually, because, of course, you know, we, we're all be, I mean, it's in the news all the time, isn't it, if you've got got issues like this. And I mean, you know, I mean, Carlos, I'm going to use your current situation as an example, <laughs> uh, because uh, you, 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 you have very fond memories of EasyJet right now. <laughs> Yeah, still not received. They've got, until, still Tuesday. Received. They've got until Tuesday. Mm. They have until Tuesday to send my right. refund okay. through. And then of course, to but also website. on the flip side to this, obviously, I mean, both you and Nev have had uh, have had to have recent dealings, obviously, with, with BA because of what's been going BA, on here. Fantastic. And, and I think you've both got positive things to say yep. about, about, about yep. that. What, what about you, Nev? They've been very prompt. You know, uh, absolutely no complaints at all. Um, the ability to either get a refund or to reschedule... And in fact, I've got a couple of vouchers because of council flights this year uh, that are valid until April 2022, oh, uh, which is, you know, very reasonable indeed. And they, I've got to say, they, they did act very quickly. Um, and it must be really challenging for the call centres and, and the people that work in them. Uh, but for me, uh, the, the flights that I've booked with BA have been uh, really well handled. Indeed. BA vouchers have got better as well. Um, so when, we, when you know, things first broke... There was a, a slightly clumsy voucher system, and you obviously they were making it in, in the best way that they could in, with the restrictions that they had in place. But essentially, you were able to redeem this voucher via the telephone only, and everyone was phoning uh, to try and get on the phone lines. And I think in the past couple of weeks, certainly with my personal experience, I've now been emailed to say that voucher that was previously only available to be redeemed on the phone is now available to be redeemed online. It's a lot slicker, and I think... Uh, it should help them as well because there'll be fewer people jamming the phones. 
Absolutely. And uh, pro- providing everybody survives this, I suppose, is the other slight worry here, isn't it? I mean, I, I understand why people have been panicking and getting, you know, trying to get their money back, um, because I, I suppose you just don't know in this current climate, do you? But uh, you, you, I mean, having seen how many millions and millions of pounds that are having to come out of these airlines, obviously, to give everybody their money back. I mean, that's not helping their situation either, is it? I suppose you've got to somehow find that fine balance, haven't you, between, um, you know, not you're not losing money left, right and centre, but also keeping your customers happy. Yeah, absolutely. Let's not forget that for some people, the summer holiday is the only time they'll get on a plane in an, an entire year. Yeah, a lot of people listening, a lot of people watching will be aviation fanatics who will maybe take it in normal times, a flight every other month and flight every other week even. Mm. Um, but there will be people out there who had booked one flight because that's all that works for them or because that's all they can afford. So having that money tied up with some third-party airline um, just simply isn't feasible, and they yeah. need that money back so that they can you know, have a new summer holiday, have a new whatever it may be. They can't simply have it waiting in some... Uh, financiers to-do list no and of course that you know the the deal that, that that suits them best when they go on hold you know when they are perhaps able to go on holiday next year you know the deal that the current airline that you've got a voucher with may not be able to offer the time frames that you need in order because of you know the, the holiday that you were given for example absolutely <laughs> it's uh it's a really tricky time and mm. if, if i was looking to book a holiday at the moment if i was looking for you know a late summer holiday even october half term Uh, With all the travel restrictions, certainly here in the UK, we've got quarantine, air bridges, things chopping and changing, even differences between the the various home nations. Uh, The nuances between what you can do if you live in Wales versus Scotland versus Northern Ireland versus England, it's it's a real hodgepodge. And I I don't envy anyone that maybe isn't quite as savvy as as we are with regards to travel. It's, uh, It's a really, really tough time. Agreed, agreed. Right, we better move so on Matt, before... Yes, moving please. on to the next story, you've Absolutely. got... Uh, obviously, we all know Wiz uh, operates their uh, small and narrow-body aircraft, but Wiz are moving into something bigger, Matt. Uh, yes, so we see. So this is aerotime.aero website, and the headline is Wiz Air to operate former Qatar freighter bought by the government. Uh, so a Wiz Air Abu Dhabi uh, celebrate... Uh, sorry, as Wiz Air Abu Dhabi celebrates the arrival of its first A321neo, its parent airline is about to receive a another unexpected Airbus acquisition. The Hungarian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade acquired an Airbus A330-200F from Qatar Airways. Uh, The freighter would be operated by Wizz Air and see its cargo capacity offered to generate revenue when the government does not need it. The acquisition of the aircraft by the Hungarian government was motivated by the need for cargo capacity during the COVID-19 pandemic. A civilian operator like Wizz Air would allow for the to receive landing permits much more easily than if it was a military aircraft, according to the, mili- the ministry quoted by or- Origo. Uh, so Qatar Airways cargo division operated a total of eight Airbus A330-200Fs that are currently being phased out and replaced by the Boeing 777F. The freighter, registered as Alpha 7 Alpha Foxtrot Foxtrot, uh, according to uh, airportal.hu, left the Toulouse final assembly line for Qatar in 2014. It is currently stationed in Doha. The date of its ferry flight to Budapest has not yet been announced. The A330-200F can accommodate 70 tonnes of cargo and has a maximum range of 7,400 kilometres, that's 4,600 miles, uh, according to Airbus's latest report. 
Newport 41 A330-200F freighters were ordered out of which 38 have already been delivered with a fleet of nine aircraft. Its main operator is Turkish Airlines. I think we're seeing. I mean, we've been seeing this more and more, haven't we? So, d- during this this current time, it's, freight uh, is king. Yeah, absolutely. Freight that, is know, well, I if, mean, anything, if anything's done well out of this, uh, well, I say well, you know, been you know busy I mean, yeah. out of the pandemic, it, it's yeah. been freight. Indeed, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I, I'm still amazed, you know, that the A3 was the A380 dash F or whatever they were going to call it. I'm still amazed <laughs> that's never really sort of, <laughs> pardon the pun, taken off. Oh. Actually, um, silence. Good, lovely. That's please. Oh, I was just going to say we <laughs> we, uh, we got a message uh, to uh, to uh, to the show just a few seconds ago oh, from right. uh, from Mr. Warner. Actually, oh. uh, Mr. Warner just said that uh, there's a story that uh, came on uh, earlier on today, just saying about uh, Lufthansa is now actually looking to retire all their remaining A380s and all of their 747s. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. That's um. I, I don't know. The eights. Oh, sorry. What was that? Even even the Lufthansa eights. Uh, the dash eights. No, I don't. It just uh, there's just a dash four hundred. It said on the uh, on the report, but okay. whether whether they'll, they'll um, um, get rid of the dash eights, I don't know. The Intercontinentals. I wouldn't have thought so because they're fairly no. new and still fairly um, um, ec- economic to run. Uh, with the new engines but yeah um, that's just a story that was sent to us by mr warner so thank you uh jonathan warner for that it's, it's not good news is it really it's uh they, it's the it's the big aircraft isn't it that are suffering most uh during yeah all this. it's a yeah. shame but uh we do like to talk about food every now and again on the show and nev nom, nom, nom. you've got a food story <laughs> Yes, we have. It's on the simpleflying.com website and it says that American Airlines has donated one million pounds of food, that's one million pounds in weight of food, (laughs) since the start of the global crisis. Uh, The airline has partnered with Feeding America and other charity organisations to provide meals to those in need. Um, and uh, this is uh, excess food from its operations to families in need across the U.S., Europe, Asia and Latin America, which are its core markets. Uh, Ron DeFeo, Senior Vice President of Global Engagement for American, stated the following in a release seen by Simple Flying. He says that the current situation has left us with a surplus of food and we are humbled to know that we are able to help put hundreds of thousands of meals on tables worldwide. The impact of the pandemic Uh, The impacts of the pandemic are far-reaching. We are a proud partner of Feeding America and will continue to work to reduce hunger in the communities we live and serve. The donation came from Americans Food and Beverage Products from its in-flight service and Admiral's Club lounges. Starting from March, uh, these included fresh produce, snack items and beverages. Uh, The items went to food banks and food pantries across the world for distribution to communities needs. Feeding America is the largest organization in the U.S. focusing on hunger relief. It's got a network of over 200 food banks across the U.S. 75, sorry, 750,000 pounds of food went to Feeding America member food banks. This equates to about 625,000 meals per the U.S. Departments of uh, Agriculture guidelines. Also, American Airlines uh, is taking mileage donations from its uh, AA Advantage members 
uh, from now through to September the 30th. Every mile donated will be given to Feeding America for up to 15 million miles. American Airlines has previously donated uh, 10 million uh, miles to St. Jude's uh, Children's Hospital. September is Hunger Action Month, a month where Feeding America raises hunger awareness across the US and works to end hunger for millions of people across the US as well. American Airlines is also joining up in that fight with volunteer events with Feeding America. AA employees will take part across the airline network to volunteer at Feeding America food banks worldwide. Uh, back in April, American Airlines partnered with the Let's Empower Employment Initiative to provide 25,000 miles for restaurant workers in Chicago and Washington, D.C. Um, other major recipients of food donations include the Greater Chicago Food Depository, St. Mary's Food Bank in Phoenix, Equal Heart and Minnie's Food Pantry in Dallas and the Tarrant Area Food Bank in Fort Worth, amongst others. American Airlines has a lot of excess food due to the alteration and streamlining of meal services on board its aircraft to prepackaged food items. The closure of some lounges and exclusive options like flagship first dining uh, and fewer passengers visiting its lounge, of course. Instead of letting the food go to waste, American is donating it to help people in need. The current crisis has exacerbated the hunger crisis in America, with more people facing economic distress, leading to food insecurity. American's donation will certainly help those in need across the U.S. As the crisis continues and American to, uh, continues to operate a reduced schedule compared to 2019, you can expect to see more food items to be donated to the organization across the world. Well, that's a very good news and worthwhile story, isn't it? Absolutely. Richard, uh, I could say that there's a comment in the chat room here. Rich from Sheffield. Yeah, absolutely. Rich from Sheffield <laughs> is saying, Nev, have you ever actually tasted airline meals in economy? <laughs> Yes, I have. Have you? Many times. I mean, not recently, I can see. But, uh, <laughs> yes, I, I have been in economy once or twice in the past. Okay, right. Uh, my commiserations, I, I guess, is the is the answer I, I should be going for there. Nothing wrong with food in economy. Uh, no, Emirates. Okay. Emirates is bang on. Right, okay. I, I should just point out, actually, everyone behave themselves. The producer's back. Oh. <laughs> anyway, quickly, he'll be horrified that we're only on this story. Move on, I know, someone. <laughs> I know. Move on. Next, uh, next story. This one is uh, on the airlineratings.com uh, website. And this is about an aircraft that I was really lucky enough to go on when I was a lot younger than I am now. So this uh, headline, the birth of the Boeing 707 was no secret. Everyone knew. So a bit of history this week. So the birth of the Boeing 707 was no secret. Everyone knew about the aircraft, but the lay media has continued to keep peddling that Boeing stole a march on its competitors. And another related myth is that Boeing had access to secret German aerodynamic wing designs and that the, or they also gave the company an edge. Again, uh, again utter nonsense, uh, nonsense, it says. So certainly Boeing's George Scherer was at uh, Vulcan Road in May 1945 and saw first-hand German aerodynamic data. But as noted, the top-secret files were to be shared. The author has been to the Douglas archives and seen over 10 five-drawer 
cabinets full of German aerodynamic data. So that secret data was available to Douglas years before the advent of the 707 versus DC-8 competition. In fact, Douglas built many fighter, uh, military fighter designs in the late 40s with swept wings and also built B-47s for Boeing at its Tulsa plant. And... Um, in its annual report of 1952, Boeing announced under the headline, Jet Transport Tanker Begun, that work has started on a jet transport prototype in the spring of that year. It stated that they, we are proud of the opinion of the company that can build a prototype transport which will enable it to demonstrate to the military and principal characteristics of combination tanker and jet transport and at the same time demonstrate to the commercial airlines the principal characteristics of a production airliner. It estimated the cost at $15 million. That year, reported sales of $739 million and a net profit of $14 million with a backlog of $1.6 billion. So not exactly betting the company, as many say. Down the coast, Douglas Aircraft Co. Uh, Corporation posted a profit of $10 million and sales of $522 million and held a backlog of $1.8 billion. It stated in its annual report that it had spent $1 million of dollars of engineering work for a jet transport. Just 12 months later in 1953 annual report, Boeing showed images of its 707 prototype under construction announcing that it would fly in the fall of 1954. At Douglas, despite soaring sales, profits of, uh, and backlogs of $874 million and $18 million and $2.2 billion respectively the company dithered saying that studies continued on may the 14th 1954 the prototype 707 dubbed the 367-80 was rolled out and flew on july the 15th 1954 douglas would not commit to its dc8 for another full year and lost over a year uh, in what would be the greatest sail race in aviation history and because it had not built a prototype and was playing catch-up problems arose that were very costly to rectify, which cost its sales and also impaired its ability to compete with Boeing that swept all before it with the Boeing 720 and 727. So it's safe to say that um, obviously that was, in its time, it was a very popular aircraft, the 707. And also, I personally, in my view, looked a lot better than uh, the DC-8, in my view, anyway, personally. And I think most people would have probably have heard of or seen that uh, all-famous uh, barrel roll done by Tex Johnson on the uh, 707. I remember the um, there's a very grainy video on YouTube that shows Tex doing the barrel roll. I think, he, I think I'm right, Nev, that he was doing um, a demonstration to uh, to customers, I think Nev wasn't he to airlines to show how how yes, good the I, aircraft was. I remember, he got reprimanded for that, and, and when asked what did he think he was doing, he said, uh, "I'm selling aeroplane." <laughs> <laughs> and by the sounds of it, it worked. That's, yeah, that's the story. But, uh, isn't, isn't the seven oh seven something that Jeff is type rated on? Uh, I can't remember. No, seven twenty seven. Seven twenty seven. Seven twenty seven. Have yeah. I just aged him terribly there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, the I, I, certainly changed uh, aviation uh, in terms mm. of uh, the range and the number of people that it could carry. Definitely. So is this, is, what, is this what we refer to? Sorry, because as everybody knows, I'm a bit of a, a muppet when it comes to this sort of thing. So is this what does like the birth of the jumbo jet then, the 707? Well, it was obviously one of the, the first um, 
wasn't the, I don't think it was the first four-engine jet by any means, but I think it was the, the, the first uh, aircraft that really had the reliability and, and the range. And by, by just having that in itself, it was able to bring ticket prices down mm. to m- more manageable levels. Obviously, the 747 took that a stage further. But, uh, yeah, for its time, uh, the 707 is a fantastic aircraft and uh, very well liked by crew and passengers alike. Did I mean, you get a chance to fly on one, Nev? I didn't, no, no, slightly, slightly before my time, even <laughs> if you can imagine that. Yeah. I was, was, was going to say, I was say to Gordon, have you come across much of Because given what you've just said there, Nev, I won't, I won't bother him with that question. <laughs> no, no. I, I just think, I'm just thinking, I thought back to when, when I had the chance, when I flew on one of these, and this, this was probably one of the first time, times that I ever went to Malta as a child because Air Malta had... Um, a few of these 707s back when they started. So, oh gosh, yeah, well, yeah, fond memories. Fond I, I bet, memories. I bet. Okay, we move on to the next story now. This is on the Popular Man- Mechanics website, and the headline is: Volunteer pilots are flying across America to celebrate 100 years of airmail. Mm. Uh, so on Tuesday, flight instructor and wheelie hero Christopher Freeze got in a turbocharged Cessna 182 and flew the first leg of a days-long event honouring the uh, 100th anniversary of the first transcontinental US airmail route. A team of volunteer pilots will form a relay across the country to follow as closely as possible the original transcontinental route from Long Island to San Francisco, uh, each in a similar small plane. Since many of those original airfields have been closed and developed, uh, the organisers stuck as close as they could to where the routes first wove, wove through the US. There's a lot of parallels between uh, right now and 100 years ago freeze tells popular mechanics we we're we're recovering from a pandemic and i saw that uh, saw this just as an opportunity to get a little nostalgic and live as an airmail pilot for a couple of hours and honor the pilots who came before uh, pilot and aircraft owners and pilots association the aopa bill uh, member bill moore organized the relay flight with freeze and half a dozen other flying others flying across the country from one airport to the next. Freeze kicks off the relay Tuesday, flying from the Republic Airport in Farmingdale, uh, New York, to uh, Belfonta in Pennsylvania. Uh, I've never flown uh, into Republic Airport. Uh, I've never landed in New York, and I've never landed in Bel... Is it Belfonte? Belfont? I know, but that, that, I feel like I'm taking the mickey. <laughs> anyway, uh, we Free, need Armando here. We do, Armando. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Free says uh, it's a little out of the ordinary. You can follow the flights in real time. Uh, so Freeze woke up at 1.30am Tuesday to commute, retrieve his aircraft. Each pilot in this rally, relay had their own and take off extremely early for his leg of the relay. A brutal schedule that the original airmail pilots understood only too well. Uh, one of the major challenges of turning air mail into a reliable national service meant aircraft had to be able to fly around the clock including uh, during the dead of night airplanes had come extremely far in just 17 years but in 1920 many areas of america didn't even have electricity uh, the postal service made and mounted hundreds of gas powered beacons that would be, could be seen from 10 miles away each acting like a dotted path from one stop to the next the earliest air mail uh, point pilots flew biplanes like the Curtis JN4H and manufacturers soon made special models for the airmail. Uh, in 1925 airmail opened up to uh 
private contractors, meaning the very uh, the very fledgling aircrafts, airlines, commercial airlines, sorry, that were happy to start learning. I've forgotten how to read this evening. I do apologize. <laughs> uh, happy to start learning to read to carry mail in exchange for a large share of postal revenue. These airlines replaced uh, mostly government air pilots who had served in the jobs until air mail workforce could be trained and grown enough to take over entirely i think uh, this is great mm. you know it's, it's an important part of uh of, of everyone's life i think the ability to send anything really via via mm. airmail especially you know we send obviously the our ptk t-shirts out across across the globe and um to be fair you know the ones that we send out even to the u.s they do get there reasonably quick yeah um, yeah, I, I, it's. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, I mean, it's. I, I, I suppose in a time where we're sort of struggling to uh, uh, actually, um, you know, get in the air. Frankly, at the moment, I think it's uh, sort of quite nice to take an opportunity to be a bit nostalgic at the moment, aren't they? These, these are. Mm. I've got some pictures here of of some of the aircraft that they were using during this particular uh, during this particular time. I mean, it really is the birth of of aviation, isn't it? These are these are beautiful pioneers um of of actually Nev is a ba that have the um royal mail um uh, logos on these they do yeah. they have the the royal mail contract yeah mm. absolutely yeah yeah um, so, um, isn't uh, it wonderful i don't know I, I i love a bit of nostalgia like that and as you say there's not a lot else going on at the moment so why not recreate a ridiculous <laughs> a ridiculous challenge because there's no uh there's no stuff going on like this it's, it's just being told in my ear that apparently the last one landed in california um I, I, i'm uh, about an hour ago apparently so there right. we are good news. and that was a seaplane special delivery as well oh indeed the one, the one before oh it's, yes sacramento <laughs> sorry yeah <laughs> okay anyway Sess- yeah. we'll move on to the next move story. on to the next story yeah nev um well flying cars <laughs> yes now talking of unusual modes of transport here's one this is on the motor one dot com website and this this really caught my eye it says that a new flying car takes flight in japan but there's a catch well it's not actually a car um japan's uh most um sorry my uh browsers playing up here that's right um and, uh, my, japan's most recent project for a proper flying car was established in may 2017 with the goal to provide a vehicle that will light the olympic flame during the 2020 olympics olympics in tokyo well the event was postponed to 2021 because of the uh, global coronavirus pandemic um, and uh, which basically means that the team had an extra year to finalise the project. The good news is that the first test run of the machine finally took place in Japan last week. In the official press release, the team of Toyota engineers, which calls itself SkyDrive, informs us that it has conducted a demonstration flight of its SD03 vehicle on August the 25th at Toyota's 10,000 square metre uh, test field. This marks the first public demonstration of a flying vehicle in Japan's history. Uh, We are extremely excited to have achieved Japan's first ever manned flight of a flying car in the two years since we founded SkyDrive in 2018 with the goal of commercialising such aircraft, said the CEO of SkyDrive. We aim to take our social experiment to the next level in 2023 and to that end we'll be accelerating our technological development and our business development. According to the information released by the firm The Flying Machine Circle 
circled the area for approximately four minutes and was controlled by an operator which was assessed sorry assisted by a computer control system skydrive says that the aircraft had been designed to be the world's smallest electric vertical takeoff and landing eVTOL and to us the this description pretty much says it directly that this isn't actually a car but rather a small aircraft the construction of the machine includes eight electric motors driving rotors deployed in four positions skydrive says that further test flights are planned for later this year and that the company even plans to make first flights outside of the test ground area by the end of 2020 so mm. what do we think about that gordon what's your thoughts on this car i'm in favor of anyone pushing the envelope quite frankly <laughs> and even if it's wacky and as long as it's not my money behind it, <laughs> I am in favour of anyone doing anything they want. It's uh, it's quirky, yes. It looks reasonable. When you were describing it in the intro, I felt, good grief, what is this actually going to look like in terms of a visualisation, in terms of a... You know, do you remember Elon Musk's sort of tank-style car yeah. that he put out earlier in the year? Everyone was sort of laughing at that, but it, you know, it sort of works. I was thinking something along the same lines of that. I was even thinking... I don't know if anyone remembers this, the Simpsons episode when Homer gets to design his perfect oh, car. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, with, with, the, with the, the, the dome over his head and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's got, it's got the super large, squishy yeah. drinks holder. It's got everything. And it looks absolutely awful, but it does the job. I was wondering what we were going to find ourselves with here. Uh, and actually, it's reasonably easy on the eyes. So, uh, Indeed. Yeah, I mean, I, for one. The only bit that worries me with, with, with that, Gordon, is a bit like, you know, essentially, if I'm remembering the episode correctly, essentially, uh, his car <laughs> bankrupted <laughs> Herbert uh, is the, you know, a, a bankrupt. Well, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the thing. Always play with someone else's money. <laughs> absolutely, yes. Home actually, Richard, <laughs> Richard Adams in the chat room says it's the C5 of the air oh, do you remember the Sinclair goodness. C5 yeah gosh I remember that <laughs> I remember that uh, do you know what it reminds me of the most actually what you were saying there is it is as as sort of good good was saying that it reminds me very much of my drone um but mm. like on a much bigger scale with a person in it uh <laughs> that's the that's the thing that good point I mean, good point says, well, will my, it go through yeah, a mcdonald's drive through i mean that's always a concern um you know one has to focus on these things um uh, i mean can you get i don't know can you get close enough can they can they throw you the food without it being chopped up by the blades <laughs> I suppose that's, that's always the risk isn't it but uh, I, I i think if the, if the pandemic has taught us anything it's that people are rather novel with McDonald's drive through because there was a time <laughs> when you were only able to get McDonald's, certainly here in the UK, yeah. if you were drive through and not everyone, particularly in London, particularly in some big cities, they don't have a car. Mm. So we've seen people go through with go-karts, oh, yeah. we've seen people even with a, a ride-on lawnmower <laughs> yeah, go yeah, through yeah. I think just to get work. their McNuggets, just to get their McFlurry. Absolutely. So uh, don't underestimate <laughs> Never underestimate the the British public if they want a McDonald's. Actually, Nev, do you think if if Ford done an RS version of this, do you think you'd be um, tempted? Oh, I, I would be putting my uh, deposit down immediately. Absolutely. Right, okay. As long as it was in banana yellow, right? Right, yes. Yes, yes of course, those are the rules. I, I can't imagine you going to a McDonald's, Nev. I've got to be honest. Oh, no, I have to get them. Yes. No, no, no. I, I'm, it's not just the caviar and chips for me. I'll, I'll oh, go right. To McDonald's as well. Caviar and chips. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
dear. It's uh, the good point here from uh, uh, Rich in Sheffield who's saying, uh, surely it'd be a fly-through, not a drive-through. There's always, there's always one, isn't there? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's always one. Thanks, chat room. Uh, right, uh, on to the next story then, please. Uh, Carlos? Is... Yes, this one is on foxnews.com. Brace yourselves, everyone. And we're, we're, going back, <laughs> we're going back to food, but this is, this is really good. I, like, I love this idea. If anyone does this around here, I'll, I'll be there. So Thai Airways opens up a pop-up restaurant complete with airline seats to serve its own airline food. Right. <laughs> so of all the things to crave during a global pandemic, airline food would seem very low on the list. But here's Thai Airways to prove us all wrong. Thai Airways, the national carrier of Thailand, recently transformed the cafeteria of its Bangkok offices into a pop-up restaurant serving the airline's in-flight menu, and it was mobbed on opening day. Uh, someone said that I like the in-flight meals on Thai Airways, but we only get to have it when we fly, said Kanta and it's a rather large name in a statement to Reuters uh, reportedly with a hint or without a hint of sarcasm I said today we get to have it here that's because uh, we want to eat so the restaurant opened up on Thursday uh, partially as a way to recoup some of the lost revenue from decreased demand for air travel amid the ongoing coronavirus pandemic according to uh, Varankala uh, Leverong the catering manager, director of Thai Airways, uh, who spoke with Reuters. Uh, the restaurant offers more than just in-flight food, too. Airline seating replaces traditional dining chairs, and the cafeteria has been decked out with spare plane parts. Uh, they've probably seen Android, I expect. Uh, the <laughs> chef and cabin crew were also available to interact with customers in full uniform while they eat. Levon Young says the pop-up, which can turn out 2,000 meals per day, will continue based on its current success. In a press release shared by Thai Airways, she confirmed that the high-quality meals will continue to be available at the Bangkok headquarters every Wednesday through to Friday. And that additional pop-ups are being planned uh, for the airline's Silom and Lang Wang offices. Lang Wang. Thank you, uh, John. Thai Airways, meanwhile, filed for bankruptcy protection in May and will learn this month whether restructuring plans are acceptable, Reuters reported. As strange as it sounds, this wouldn't be the first time such an idea actually got off the ground. Last year, AirAsia opened up its first of its fast food restaurants selling meals usually reserved for its in-flight menu. I have to say, the pictures on the story uh, with this... Um, Really, honestly, it's it's a, it's a brilliant idea. I think if you were going to open an, uh, a restaurant for aviation enthusiasts or uh, aviation geeks, you'd want to have it looking pretty much like this. But I I did note one thing though: no one's using the uh, tray the seat the tray backs oh, on the seat. Dear, right. yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, on the subject of pictures, actually, if anybody is curious as to the car that Gordon mentioned earlier, there we are. That is Homer's car that was indeed uh, created. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's a beautiful beast, uh, it has to be said. Uh, Gordon, seriously, though, I mean, is this something that would interest you or or is it a bit like, you know, when you finish writing for the day, actually, I've had enough. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with aviation at all. <laughs> In terms of whether I would go to uh, an aviation-themed restaurant? restaurant, yeah. <laughs> If, if it was a pop-up, a true pop-up, if it was there for a month and a month only, then, yeah, you, you'd get me there on, on day one or two, uh, even on my own steam. If it was there as a permanent fixture, 
and there were slightly dubious means if you got the impression that these were frozen meals that even you know, even frozen meals got a, a, an expiry date i'm sure uh, <laughs> and they were just trying to get rid of some some old stock then then maybe not but uh <laughs> yeah yeah def- definitely worth a definitely worth a shot worth a shot yeah i, I... I mean, Carlos. I mean, you'd obviously go there with, without batting an eyelid, would, uh, would you? I mean, it's... do you know what, Matt? If I if 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 I didn't risk losing this here, mm. I would happily have uh, aircraft seating yes, downstairs. Yes, you, you mean lose your house. wife? That's that's what you mean, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, indeed. Yeah. She would divorce you within minutes. Uh, now, yeah. I, I'm going to start a thread that I may regret here in uh, from our chatman jo- chat room. Jonathan Warner is saying, "I wonder if Ryanair will open one endless choice of lukewarm paninis." <laughs> Uh, which is, um, you know, perhaps uh, possibly uh, we could get uh, sued for that, I think. Uh, uh, There was a couple of them. I I think the big question is if if BA opened one, Nev, would you you go? I would, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Rich from Sheffield is saying, Ryanair, it it goes ding when it's finished. Uh, You know, I mean, there's there's sort of several. uh, You you, you get the theme there. It's Uh... (laughs) Tony's commenting on the fact that it reminds him the Jetsons were awesome uh, with the Homer car. Uh, I think that's a good point, uh, but uh, <laughs> there we go. Never mind. It's 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 one of those. We better move on before we get uh, yeah Nev get stuck in a loop. Move, yeah, <laughs> moving on to you, Nev. And this is uh, one Airbnb that I would uh, love to uh, to go and visit. Yeah, of course. Airbnb has been you know one of the most popular ways of uh, staying away somewhere at low cost. But how about this? When I look at an Airbnb, I'm always concerned about where I can park my car and stuff of like course. that. Well, in this case, I'll be looking to where I can park my aircraft because this is an Airbnb which says it's a romantic, cosy cabin for two overlooking an airport. Uh, the description uh, is brilliant. It says, escape daily stresses and rest peacefully in this luxurious small cabin. Work from home and socially distance in comfort. A guest commented that the cabin took their relationship to new heights a quaint cabin located on a quiet road overlooking a pond and cherry ridge airport near honesdale uh, which is uh, in philadelphia uh, or sorry pennsylvania beg your pardon close to attractions including skiing shops and dining fly in and park a plane in the driveway or drive you can de-stress in the cozy cottage enjoying sunsets from the screened porch or kayaking uh, the space itself, the, the cosy cabin, offers an open concept layout. It's the perfect spot to decompress and forget the stresses of everyday life. You can rest and relax or find adventure. And uh, the descriptions of it are, you know, the usual sort of thing that you'd see in an Airbnb. Uh, but I don't know if Matt's got some uh, pictures. Yeah, I'm trying to. Unfortunately, the Airbnb website has just crashed. So, <laughs> oh yeah. Well, there's some really, really nice pictures of the um, uh, of, of where the aircraft park and parked and the uh, little airport next to it as well. And uh, yeah, it's it looks a, a, a very nice place indeed. Actually, Nev, if you wanted to take uh, Mrs. Nev there for Christmas um, over the Christmas period and fly back or come back in the new year. It's at £920. Currently, currently, the website here looks like this. There we are. Isn't that lovely? It's sort of pulsating grey boxes is what we have at the oh, moment. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, yeah, I mean, 920 quid's not bad for a week mm, over, over Christmas. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's got something a bit, bit different there, isn't it? So, uh, yeah. And uh, 
Uh, there's also a restaurant on the field as well, uh, Cherry Ridge Restaurant. Um, and uh, it's about 100 miles um, from New Liberty International Airport and about 150 miles from Philly. And uh, five nights stay is a minimum of around about £100 a night. And uh, the airport it, it's attached to is called Cherry Ridge Airport. And uh, runway 1836 is 2,986 feet by 50 feet. So plenty of room, uh, mm. maybe even for a, a small jet possibly as well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, how about that? I'm hmm. booking it now. Good. Credit card details going in. <laughs> anyway, moving swiftly on, otherwise I will literally spend some money. And uh, Nev, we're going to hand things over to you to introduce the next part of the show. Yeah, thanks, Carlos. Well, this is a real treat, I must say. Uh, coming up next was an interview that the Airline Pilot Guy show played out as an audio-only one uh, earlier this year. But I'm pleased to say that I've now edited all of the video parts for it together so we can bring it to you here on PTUK as well. Well, Ian Palmer is an accomplished musician. He first began to play drums at the age of nine, inspired by his two uncles, who also played drums, Steve and Carl Palmer as in Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Ooh. Ian has also been a first officer for a number of airlines, the most recent one being what we call Acme Red. He's got an incredible story to tell about his life as an aviator, but also about the immense difficulties that he has faced personally. He flew with Captain Nick on a couple of sectors as well, and it's Nick himself that presents the series of four interviews with Ian. Many thanks to both of these gentlemen for providing the original video and audio material. So let's have a look and a listen to part one of Ian's fascinating story. Ian, it's uh, an absolute delight to uh, see you again, and thank you very much indeed for uh, allowing us to interview you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's great to see you again, Nick. And uh, it's just going to be a fascinating series of interviews. Um, so I think we should kick off. Now, you have had, a, by any measure, a fascinating uh, life and career, various careers. So why don't we start off right at the beginning. Um, tell me about your early life and how you got into music. Yeah, well, I think I was always destined to get into music. I come from a musical family. Uh, I have two uncles who are drummers. Uh, two very different styles, actually. Uh, my dad's, uh, my late father's middle brother, Carl, was a, is, a, is a rock drummer. He's quite well known. He played with the band Emerson, Lake and Palmer and uh, the band Asia afterwards. And my dad's youngest brother, so my youngest uncle, is Steve, who, Steve Palmer, who's a fantastic jazz drummer. So um, from a very young age, my family, certainly on my father's side, have been very involved with music. So it's always something that um, I've been around from a very, very young age. Well, that's brilliant. Um, you obviously followed them into uh, the same career. You became a drummer. How did that happen? I, um, as I say, I was always around music. I've always had a passion for music. I got to the, I remember very specifically, actually, I got to the age of nine. And this one Christmas, my dad had a VHS video recording of Emerson, Lake and Palmer playing at the Montreal Olympic Stadium and this is a big concert that they performed with a big orchestra it was very uh, it was a huge event and in fact the afternoon sound check 
of that event, they recorded the video for the single Fanfare for the Common Man, which was a single which Emerson, Lake and Palmer released. So I remember watching this v VHS video and I remember watching Carl play this huge drum solo and I was like, wow, dad, that's what I want to do. And I, that was a moment for me where I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be a drummer and follow in the footsteps of my Uncle Carl and, of course, my Uncle Steve. Well, you obviously had some talent because uh, that went very well. Tell me about your early life uh, as a drummer. Well, Steve, um, Carl was always touring the world. Steve lived quite close to us, so Steve was fantastic because he used to come over and give me drum lessons and really sort of nurtured any god-given talent at a, at a young age um, but we always realized well, my dad was very sort of this is what you're going to do for a career son we need to make sure give you every opportunity to be um, as good as you can possibly be so I had a fantastic uh, some fantastic teachers in the early days um, I remember going off to New York and uh, flying on this big aeroplane to New York. And, uh, and I was really impressed with the aeroplane at the time as well. Um, but to take lessons with uh, a fantastic drummer who um, left us around about 10 years ago, but uh, some of the listeners as viewers may know of him. And his name is Joe Morello, who for me is probably one of the finest technical drum or finest technicians on the drum set uh, of all time. He had uh, fantastic hands and he was the drummer with the Dave Brubeck quartet actually and he recorded that famous uh, jazz single which I think was one of the only jazz uh, pieces to make it into the uh, charts uh, with a drum solo take five so oh, I studied oh with, yes I, I yeah. love that piece of music it's great yeah so I studied with Joe um, I also had the opportunity to play we, we always thought that I guess the perception was that to be a jazz drummer gave you the tools to play all different types of music. So at a very young age, I joined an orchestra in, in the Birmingham area, which was um, at the time, well, it still is, is um, really quite highly regarded. It's, the, the, the orchestra is called the Midlands Youth Jazz Orchestra. And the name really belies what the organisation is all about, because at a very young age, I joined this orchestra and had the opportunity to tour in the United States. We went to Russia and toured extensively throughout Europe, backing various artists. And from that group, actually, um, are a lot of my friends today who have gone on to become session musicians in London and indeed around the world. So it was a really good breeding ground for uh, the sort of the UK session scene, if you like. That's excellent. It opened doors mm. for you, for sure. Um, really did. What was it like then as uh, you began to get a bit older and um, you felt like branching out on your own? What did you end yeah. up doing? Well, I got to the, uh, I got to the age of um, just before uh, sixth form at school and uh, realised that, well, of course, I wanted a career in, uh, in music. So my education to be brutally honest, suffered. And so I put that to one side, but I moved to London expecting the pavements to be lined with gold. This was me going to London to make well, they, my mark. they weren't? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. So I arrived in London, uh, a young man, um, full of confidence that uh, this was it, this was where I'm, this is what I was here to do, make my mark on the London scene. And, you know, it, to a certain extent, it went well. Yeah. But 
there were some huge pitfalls and uh, waiting for me there and some you know, massive hurdles uh, which would manifest themselves as we carried on, actually. Okay, um, but what kind of music on who were you playing with at that time? Well, I had a, um, I was, as I said, my background was in jazz, although in recent times, you know, I play all styles of music. You know, I class myself as a drummer, not a jazz drummer, but effectively my background then was in playing jazz music. And I had a quintet, which we used to, which was a very contemporary jazz quintet featuring some fantastic musicians. There was the um, trumpet player who's, he's now a, a a BBC broadcaster, um, Guy Barker on trumpet, um, Dave O'Higgins on tenor saxophone, a fantastic pianist called Dave Newton, and you probably will recognise the name Dankworth, um, John Dankworth's son, Alec Dankworth, on acoustic bass. And we had the opportunity to play at some lots of different jazz clubs. We did some TV appearances and uh, did, we recorded at um, the fabulous Ronnie Scott's, where I played uh, on and off during my time in London, which was a great meeting place for musicians and a great place to network. Yeah, uh, you must have met some pretty well-established and famous people, particularly if you were playing at Ronnie Scott's. Are you going to drop a few names for us? Well, I did. I had the opportunity to, um, certainly in, in the jazz circles, was, was, was amazing. I had the opportunity, if I remember one experience, um, I was called to stand in, the drummer, um, on this run of gigs at Ronnie Scott's got sick. And I had the opportunity to play with um, Buddy Greco, who was famous you know, in the 60s. And um, his, one of his claims to fame was he was very, very close with the great drummer Buddy Rich. And um, he had a fearsome reputation. And I remember going along to play this um, evening concert, just standing in with Buddy Greco. And it was a real learning experience, actually, because everyone said, oh, he's, he's got a terrible temper. And, uh, you know, and I was getting really worried about this. <laughs> and I showed up on the gig. And it's one of those experiences where actually he was a real gentleman. He was a really lovely person. And I thought, wow, you know, don't be judgmental. Don't be prejudiced towards this. This was a fantastic experience. And the concert went really well. So, um, so that was one memorable experience. But oh, there were lots of different people um, around that time. I even, uh, you, you may know of, um, in a slightly different area, um, she's, she's quite well known for being on cruise ships um, with Jane McDonald. And I made a, uh, as soon as she sort of rose to fame with these reality TV programs around, that was sort of the birth of reality TV. I did, uh, I was on a, a Christmas DVD with Jane playing with a big orchestra. And we had a really lovely uh, experience there touring. We played one night to a celebrity audience, which was on uh, BBC at uh, the Royal Albert Hall. Oh, wow, that um, must have been an experience. Yeah, amazing. And there was the lovely uh, Barbara Windsor uh, was there. And there's lots of sort of the TV, um, the morning TV presenters at that moment. So yeah, it was really, really good. And then I sort of branched out more into the pop side of things and had friends who were involved in that. And uh, so there were quite a few experiences there. Um, so it really was a, um, oh, it was a, uh, you know, the, it kind of leads nicely on to um, one of the hurdles that I suffered around that time. Yeah, and that's, that's true. You were a very young man at this point still and away from your parents. I was away from my parents. I was 
17, 18 years old. Um, you know, they described me as being quite precocious, I think was the expression. Um, and yeah, I was very, very, very full of, very f full of myself, very high on confidence. But uh, one of the problems that I did, well, one of the things I discovered there, um, which always made me feel better, was alcohol. That was the thing which really got me. And I would be in my little um, flat there, I would be drinking with friends. Um, but I realized that actually, I didn't just like this alcohol, I really loved it to the point where I actually couldn't stop drinking. So it was really quite a problem for me. Did you recognize the problem yourself? No, no, I, I didn't. And this is one of the reasons now why you know, I'm, it, a lot of the my CV and everything is on my website. But there's a lot of the things now I kind of struggle to remember certain things that happened in London around that time um, because I spent most of my time um, and not on this planet, you know, drinking. So, yeah, I, re I didn't realize it was so much a problem because I think around that time, certainly in the music industry, um, it was a, there was a huge drinking culture. So it was commonplace to drink. Um, I will say, uh, and I know we'll go on to talk about it, but I will say that actually that drinking culture seems to have um, dissipated somewhat now uh, in the in the music world. It's a far more professional environment. But at that time, yeah, I was um, uh, probably a better drinker than I was drummer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, that's an interesting thing. Now, you may not have noticed it, but I gather some of your older friends uh, spotted it. Yeah, I had a, um, so my father was really, you know, trusting, I know friends would say to my mum and dad, how's Ian doing? Oh, he's doing fantastic. He's doing this, he's doing that. Um, you know, he's doing this TV performance. You can catch him doing this, catch him doing that. And they were really proud. And my dad you know, very, was, was a very proud person. And um, it came as a total shock when a friend rang my father up and said, I think Ian's got a problem. And they were like, Right, and they, I think they were, must have been in denial um, because at the time, you know, I was drinking so much. I will say that I had at one point, and there was no need financially for me to do this, but I had a, um, I had a, had a really lovely postcode as well. Um, and that postcode where I was living for about 10 days was um, W1D oh. in the West End of London. Yep. And it was a doorway of Marks and Spencer's. You slept in the doorway of Marks and Spencer's? Yeah, I had 10 days there where I thought I fell in with a certain crowd and I thought this was really cool. And there was certain musicians who had done some pretty wacky things around that time. And I actually thought, you know, the more kind of more outrageous I was, in a way, made me more rock and roll And at uh, that time. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I, you know, I didn't have uh, any. I was, so I was effectively homeless is what uh, was what the problem was and they always say about alcohol that it will take everything it will take those people away around you and it'll eventually take your life and it started to do that wow how, how did the realization come come to you that you needed to do something um, well the realization came in the form of my father coming uh, along and finding me and saying son you need to come. You need to come back home. This music 
is is not working. This musical career is really not working out for you. Um, you need to consider uh, a different career, I think. Um, and he was right to a certain extent. Music wasn't working for me. But ultimately, as I came to realize, the problem was between my ears. So matter, no matter where I went to another career, you know, I could have become a doctor, I could have become anything potentially, but the problem would never have gone away as was proven. That's interesting, but you did try a, a different career uh, mm. and um, this was an attempt to break the cycle as it were. Uh, what happened? Mm. How did you move so, on? My uncle Steve, so my dad's youngest brother, had a very close friend who was um, an airline pilot who, who we both know actually, who um, worked for a long haul airline in the UK. And I had the opportunity then at the end of, um, to try and get away from music. And this was pre 9-11, 2001. I had the opportunity to sit on the jump seat. And this was on a, an old Boeing 747-200, uh, the <laughs> flight engineer. And I remember at that time, sitting on the jump seat, looking down from the side window behind my friend, who was the uh, captain on this aircraft, and um, thinking, are we moving? And just remember just the airplane gently rolling away. And I just remember all of the, as I thought at the time, the pomp and ceremony with getting this big, you know, hundreds of tons worth of airplane into the air. And that whole thing, I just thought, wow, that was just so impressive. Um, but what I will say is that what is evident with, the condition that we'll talk about um, was that the ego played a big part of it and in music I had a desire to be on stage so when I saw my friend as the captain of this big aeroplane I you know I was really oblivious to the amount of work that went on for him to become you know, the captain of this aeroplane and what exactly was involved with it all I saw was somebody getting lots of adulation and being in charge and the ego that surrounds that. And I thought, yeah, that'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it, to be the captain of a big aeroplane? Um, but actually, the more I thought about it and the more I'd spoken to my friend about it, the more fascinated I became with the whole experience. And I had the opportunity to go to, I remember to go to Boston and experience the night stop in Boston and experience going to uh, Barbados. So that was uh, really, really wonderful and uh, he's very very generous my friend and uh, he's still flying today and uh, you know i'll be forever grateful and i will say he's um, he's a very fine bass player and that's how our family knew him because my uncle steve used to play on cruise ships in a band with uh, with my friends so it was uh, that's how i got into aviation that's what really sort of lit that spark if you like a bit like seeing the video of my uncle carl um, in 90, uh, playing at the Montreal Olympic Stadium with Emerson, Lake and Palmer. That was the, the, the moment for me. Um, and I think I've always been quite lucky because I've always known what I've wanted to do. You know, my brother's totally different to me. He's never really known what he wanted to do with his life. But I've always known for me, I was always be, one of the things I do have, I have the ability to be quite decisive. So I knew that I wanted to do drumming and then have an experience on the flight deck of that Boeing 747-200 really cemented to me that feeling that, yes, this is what I want to do. Well, that's brilliant, and thank you, Ian. We'll move on to discussing your career in aviation uh, when we get together uh, next week. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick.
And there we have it. First part. How cool is that? That that was really good. I, I listened. I have listened to um, to the audio, but it's great to see uh, the video. Mm. Yeah, as well. And uh, I had quite a long long chat with Ian last night. Actually, phoned me up. We had a, about an hour on the phone <clears throat> with each other, which was fantastic. So, listening to hear about what he's doing uh, from the fl- flying point of view, and what have you. I shan't give anything away at the moment because there's still things on ongoing. But uh, no, it was a very interesting uh, first part. And uh, as the interviews go on, we've got another three parts to show. Uh, there's some uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, stories that he's telling and uh, the struggle that he's had um, with, mm. with some personal things, certainly. So mm. Looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. Yeah, really enjoyed that. Thanks, Nev. Thanks for putting that together yeah. for us. Excellent visuals, as always, Nev. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to move on to the next part of the show then, which is obviously the segment that uh, normally would be introduced by Armando, but uh, he sent us in a video, so we're going to do some military news. So if everyone is ready... Yeah! Let's go. Let's go. To kick off this week's military news from military.com, Four Marines were able to get out of a heavy lift helicopter safely after it made an emergency landing just miles from their air station. The CH-53E Super Stallion was assigned to the Marine Corps Air Station in New River, North Carolina, made an emergency landing on Thursday. The aircraft landed in Dixon, which is about 11 miles from New River. All four crew members aboard the aircraft were safe and no injuries were reported. The Marine Corps released few details about the mishap, citing an ongoing investigation. We are thankful for the quick response to the scene by the North Carolina Highway Patrol, the Onslow County Sheriff's Office, and the Onslow County Emergency Medical Service, uh, according to the Marines said on a Thursday statement. The reason for the precautionary landing was not immediately known. The newspaper The Daily News in Jacksonville, North Carolina, said the aircraft experienced a fire shortly after it landed. All of the Marines were out of the aircraft before it fully caught fire, according to the paper. So in-flight fires in aircraft are rare, but not unheard of. In June 2019, a Marine Corps Super Stallion caught fire while it was conducting a training flight over Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in California. It was forced to conduct an emergency landing also. That crew also emerged uh, safely This is yet another example of the dangers associated with aviation. A helicopter like this has many complicated primary and redundant systems for electrical, hydraulic, and fuel, among others. Like anything mechanical, it is subject to failure, especially under the immense stresses that these aircraft are under during their operations and during training. So we hope all is well uh, with the crew and the uh, the Marines that were uh, on that aircraft and uh, that the service is able to determine the cause to help prevent similar instances in the future. It's always um, sad to hear when something like this happens, but obviously it's good when uh, when the crews get out safe. But um, these uh, these helicopters are built like tanks. Um, yeah. 
I've seen the documentaries on these on these particular helicopters, and they are they are like flying tanks. Yeah, I still stick to my earlier statement that I think I said. You don't like week. helicopters. I don't like helicopters <laughs> at all. As I say, they you know they they're, they're not made by engineers. They're made by wizards in Hogwarts. That's mm. what helicopters are made by. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there we are. Do you want to move on to the next one, Carlos? Yeah, this next one is on the aviationist.com headline: U.S. Marine Corps F-35Bs of the Wake Island Avengers land in the UK for joint training with British Lightnings. So the US Marine Corps squadron will take part to uh, numerous exercises ahead of next year's deployment on the HMS Queen Elizabeth Carrier. 10 F-35Bs from the US Marine Corps Marine Fighter Attack Squadron uh, landed at RAF Marham on September the 3rd and to conduct joint training with the Royal Air Force's 617 Squadron, or the Dambuster Squadron. And uh, they'll be using the call sign Mazda. Hmm, sounds like a car to me. Um, (laughs) And they arrived in the UK a day later than planned, as they had to delay their departure from uh, the actual place in Beaufort after their first leg from their home base in Yuma because of adverse weather on the transatlantic route. Now, you wouldn't think that they'd be affected by adverse weather, would you, something like this? But the Marines, uh, after quarantine, during which they will use the base's simulators to familiarise with the local airspace and procedures, will participate together with uh, their British colleagues to numerous exercises in preparation for the joint deployment on the HMS Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier next year. RAF Marham Station Commander Group Captain Beck uh, welcomed the Marines after their arrival, saying it's fantastic to welcome uh, the VMFA 211 to Royal Air Force Marham for the first time and we're looking forward to working with them over the coming weeks to prepare them for their deployments to HMS Queen Elizabeth. He said we are planning to undertake a qualification period and then participate in two exercises. These exercises will really put our personnel to the test to ensure they are ready to deploy on Carrier Strike Group 21 next year and they will have the opportunity to showcase their capabilities of the F-35 and its inoperability alongside our NATO partners. After the uh, local training area with the Dambusters, the Wake Island Avengers will take part to exercise point-blank with the F-15s from RAF Lakenheath. Oh, plenty of those over the air this week. And other NATO nations before going to sea aboard HMS Queen Elizabeth for carrier qualifications and exercise Joint Warrior, which will last from September the 21st to October the 15th. This exercise will bring together multiple units train collaboratively in preparation for Carrier Strike Group 21 next year and will also include live and inner weapons training during the day and night carrier operations. It's safe to say um, where me and Matt live here on the east coast of the UK, we do have a a very good view of lots of training that goes on with these aircraft. These actually, the F-35s we've had flying over here at various points in the last few weeks. I know uh, our UK uh, versions, or UK Mm. registered ones anyway. Um, But we are lucky, Matt, in that where we live, we do get quite a lot of... um, of exercises. I of, know, but they're uniforms. always doing it when I'm trying to sleep. That's the problem. <laughs> and that they don't, they aren't conducive to, uh, you know, unless you're Jonathan Warner, where you're so obsessed by them essentially that it is like white noise and put, you know, it, it's very therapeutic. It's just actually, a, I, I need to have words with Armando because the other night, Matt, 
only you. I think I, I think I was on the phone to might have been you or or on WhatsApp with you. Right. And we had the um, the Ospreys flying over at at ten or half past ten in the evening. Oh, Carlos, I've over slept here. since then. The chances of remembering <laughs> something like that is almost zero. Dear me. But these these guys were really low, and you cannot you no. cannot miss no. the noise of a beach. I think I think I was saying actually with the well also like, like with the Ospreys as you were saying I was at um, I'd actually gone to go and visit my cousin. They'd come down from London and they were uh, at the. Um, one of the uh, caravan parks in uh, Kessingland, mm. and they were they were camping and stuff. And because all around Southwold and, and the surrounding area, they that they, they there was a, a I think it was about a week's worth of exercises that were going on. Mm. And it, honestly, it was I mean I got loads of shots on my just on my my phone. Unfortunately, even, even zoomed in, they were just a little. What, bit was it an iPhone? Away. It 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 was an uh, iPhone. Sorry, but, uh, I don't know what's that sorry. what that what has that got to do with anything. Anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're just going to say actually a quick note as well. Moving on that. Uh, the pictures that uh, were shown uh, on that story were courtesy of at RAF photo G. It's a photo with a G at the end. Indeed. uh, Yeah, great photos there for that story. So, Nev, next story, this next story makes me wish I had a huge back garden. (laughs) Yes, we were talking about RAF Marham in in your story, uh, Carlos. So this is on the uh, uh, Eastern Daily Press. Um, The local rag. Oh, blimey. Indeed it is, yes. (laughs) Well, the Victor tanker aircraft by the main gate at RAF Marham is being offered free to a good home. Uh, But no one has come forward to remove and restore the aircraft. Surveys had revealed structural defects, which meant the aircraft would fall apart without urgent rectification work, which were beyond the RAF's budget for looking after its gate guardians. Now, the Norfolk Air Base says on its website, unfortunately, no one has come forward who has the capability to remove and restore her, so the difficult decision has been made to dispose of her. Oh, no. Whilst RAF Marham will be sad to dispose of an aircraft that played an important role in the heritage of the station, we are reassured that there is a victor in the skilled and professional care of the Royal Air Force Museum Cosford and the Imperial War Museum collection at Duxford. And uh, we have seen uh, both of those, actually. Uh, we're reassured that the story of the Victor fleet and those who flew and supported it is preserved for perpetuity uh, for the nation and the national collection. The Victor began its life as one of the RAF's fleet of Cold War bombers, which were the mainstay of the nation's nuclear deterrent in the early 1950s. In the late 1960s, a number were converted to provide aerial refuelling. One of the squadrons uh, flew from RAF Marham in the 1970s. During the 1982 Falklands War, a fleet of 11 victors refuelled themselves and a Vulcan bomber during the 6,600-mile journey from Ascension Island to bomb the airfield at Port Stanley, which was occupied by Argentine forces. The aircraft saw service in the first Gulf War in 1991 when they were used to refuel tornado jets on their way to strike missions. They were withdrawn in 1993. Uh, The Victor was on offer via the Defence Equipment Sales Authority and whilst it does not have any other aircraft available, it is offering the minesweeper uh, HMS Atherstone and various small patrol boats. Well, I remember Carlos and I, you remember the uh, Victor tanker that we saw? Mm. 
operating at Bruntingthorpe. We had a very nice interview with the crew there. Uh, this is not a quiet aircraft when it was doing its taxi runs, was it? But uh, <laughs> it's a great shame if they if they are going to um, dispose of it because uh, that's a, a. I know there are other examples around, but that's a fantastic piece of history, right? There, Indeed. Uh, Tony S in the chat room was saying, "Get Bob Tuxford to fly it out." Uh, that's yes, always yeah. an option. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm. that's in response to Jacob Darlington, Darlington Brown who was saying can they ship the aircraft to Sydney I'll take it mm. uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a comm- I'm a commercial aviation fan I love everything passenger jet but, mm. but I'll tell you what if I had a big enough garden I'd have this blooming thing in there yeah because it's just awesome uh, Masha is suggesting that nothing that it's nothing that a bit of duct tape can't fix surely which is a good point uh, you know I mean if, it, if you can't there must mend be it with duct someone yeah who would there take must this be chair. somebody out there who wants to do it. I see we've just been joined by Rick Bell, by the way, speak, as Hello, we're on, on uh, military. There we go. It's all part of, He says, I knew it. I had a feeling, because I say, we're just saying in the chat room that he joined us in time for the military. I knew it. I had a feeling. I don't think I'm here long. Oh, right. Oh, well, in fact, do you know what? Before, before we move on, on yeah. I will say, I, I have a sneaky feeling that it's not the fact that um, you know people can't, actually have this aircraft in their garden right. or have a big enough garden because there are a lot of people who have big enough garden for this mm. aircraft but i think the thing that stops a lot of people from having this aircraft is the fact that i'd imagine it would probably cost a few thousand quid to have this aircraft moved by truck to your garden no well, no no that's true uh, that's true and also i mean of course you've got yeah. the, you've got the wife to get round as well, exactly. that, that, that is yeah. another issue. Actually, yeah. just while uh, we're, we're talking about that, I just had a message from Jonathan Warner who was saying, Matt, I absolutely love the Hunter photo behind you. That's the Hawker Hunter Aviation's newest airframe, an ex Embraer chase plane. Look at that. There we go. Hang on. Let, 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 let's make me disappear. There we go. It looks so much better when we do that, doesn't it? There <laughs> we go. Look at that. It is a, it's a, it's a stunning. It's sent to us by um, Alan White uh, this week. Uh, no, Alan Loveday. Sorry. Sent oh, thank you, Alan. Alan. Love Day, so thank you for that. There we go. We'll make me magically reappear. There we are. It's 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 like magic. Excellent. Uh, anyway, we'll move on. So now yeah, to... story four, and this is uh, specially done from Armando. Indeed. Here we go. A few weeks ago, we talked about the Irish Air Corps acquiring some new aircraft. Well, according to FlyingInIreland.com. The service is expected to take delivery of those three aircraft, the new Pilatus PC-12 Spectres, a little bit later this week. The three aircraft have been based at the Pilatus facility located at the Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport just outside Denver, Colorado, since February of 2019. They were delivered there from the Pilatus factory in Switzerland to be fitted out with their mission equipment and to undergo testing. These three aircraft took off within minutes of each other the other day, Uh, from their temporary home headed for Burlington, Vermont, where they landed after a flight of almost five hours. Following an overnight stop, they continued on to Goose Bay in Newfoundland for another overnight stop before the Atlantic crossing. They were scheduled to continue on to Iceland on Wednesday and then make their final journey to their new home in Baldonnell on Thursday. So the three aircraft have been carrying U.S. civil registrations for the duration of the time in Colorado. They are November 280, 281, and 282 November Gulf. Uh, They are expected to take up serial numbers 280, 281, and 282 respectively on arrival with the Irish Air Corps. The contract for the new PC-12s was signed in 2017, and initially two of the aircraft were due for delivery in 2019, but some delays in the U.S. and then the COVID-19 pandemic caused further delays. 
The new aircraft will uh, spend its first few weeks undergoing extensive testing, uh, crew familiarization flights prior to entering full active service. Now, these aircraft are equipped for ISTAR, or Intelligence Surveillance Target Acquisition and Reconnaissance Mission Role. On arrival, on arrival at Baldonnell, the aircraft will take up the Irish markings and the Air Corps roundel will be added to the color scheme. And just a little note to add to that story as well and uh, from Armando. And our, those aircraft have successfully landed at the Irish Air Corps Base uh, Casement Aerodrome uh, in Baldonnell, Dublin, uh, yesterday morning. And uh, this is where the pictures that you may have uh, been seeing on the YouTube version have come from. Now, the aircraft have already been taken back or, uh, into the air, uh, flying familiarization flights with the Air Corps. And also, a slight correction, they will take up the military serials 281, 282, and 283 with uh, the 104 Squadron, the Hawkeyes. <laughs> well quite <laughs> there we go there's um... yeah alan white says uh, apparently that uh, he saw the formation fly over dublin yesterday uh he says that not often we get new kit in the irish air corps so yeah Ooh. it's good that, is, like that is a good point. Okay, I think we should leave the military there if that's all right with everyone. Sorry, Jonathan. Uh, but <laughs> but so, yes, uh, moving on to our chat with our guest this mm, evening. And uh, we welcome again Gordon Smith onto the show. Gordon, it's great to have you on and to, uh, to obviously have a good chat with you about what, uh, what it is you do. Uh, but we're going to sort of ask the first question, where did aviation start with you? Aviation start with me. I mean, it's it's a weird one. I remember my first ever aviation memory, if you want to call it that, was I since discovered on a Northwest flight heading to Florida. Must have been two or three years old, and I received a pin badge from one of the senior flight attendants. Uh, and I wasn't even able to wear the pin badge because obviously with the sharp the sharp needle on the back of it. But my mom kept it, and then she gave it to me when I was a little bit older. And she said, "You've got this." On an aircraft when we were going to Florida, and that sort of rejected a little bit of my memory. I think it was a DC-10 with Northwest um, in the very early 90s, and then somehow from that, that spurred off a lot of interest in aviation. And then I don't quite know what happened, but something happened, and then I almost became scared of flying. So I think I learned too much about it, and I started to think too much about it, and I sort of hyper researched everything. And, you know, there were programs like air crash investigation and invariably, in, you know, you take any 12-month period, any six-month period, there's going to be some, some events that we would all rather forget in the industry. And I, I, was, I was able to latch on to the bad things and not the good things. So I was able to look at what aviation didn't do very regularly, which was cause things that we don't like to speak about. And forget about all the pleasure and all the jobs and all of the passion and all of the excitement and all of the the fantasticness of it. And then it got to a point whereby I was sitting on a Rhino flight to Spain in my mid-teens to late teens, and I had my hoodie drawn full of my face, almost like um, what's the character in South Park? Oh, Kenny. Well, Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it, it was coming out of Edinburgh on a sort of nasty January evening, lots of crosswinds, lots of nastiness. I was thinking, this is not one for me. Pull the drawstrings and I'll sort of open myself up when it gets to, to cruise altitude. 
And I thought, I cannot be doing this. You know, I cannot be doing this all the time. So I sort of went full circle and I started to research everything again with a sort of slightly more settled head and a slightly more uh, refined train of thought. Uh, and you, as soon as you start to plug in to the stats, the numbers and everything else, you realize you're safer on a plane than you are sitting in your bedroom at home. Um, and from there, when I was able to rationalize everything, I fell in love with aviation again. And I was able to take that fear, and it had become a fear, sort of irrational fear towards the end, um, and really enjoy it for, for what it is. It's the most remarkable industry. It's the most remarkable technology, in my opinion. Um, and, yeah, it all sort of I, – I was reborn, if you like, uh, as an aviation enthusiast. So we've got a question from the chat room uh, for you, actually, uh, before, Gordon. Before you go, go with that, actually, oh, yeah. I should just, just, just point out here. So Alan White was just saying, really looking forward to hear from Gordon in Key Publishing. Each month's copy of Air International... I know somebody else who has a similar thing here. Uh, each month's copy of Air International has been sitting on the coffee table beside my dad's armchair for as many years as I can remember. So there you go, look. It's... Uh, it's sort of praise indeed. Now, now, Carlos, you were saying, actually, you've been yeah. a subscriber for a couple of years. Yeah, I have. Um, we've actually got a question from Tony S. in the chat room. Mm. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a uh, subscriber to Airliner World. I love it. Absolutely love it. I have done for many years. Um, Tony S. is asking, obviously, because you've got these great photos that, that obviously come, that, that come in the magazine each month. And he says, uh, what is the process of sourcing images for the printed media? And how does one go about getting images published in a magazine? It's a great question, uh, and I've got an easy answer. So uh, just just speak to us. You know, we've been described as the Hello Magazine of Aviation. You know, we're lots of glossy photo spreads and center spreads. We always make sure that we've got plenty of images in there. And there are cynics who think that it's a, a cheap way, an easy way for us to fill pages. Quite the opposite. Um, it's usually more expensive to fill a page with pictures than it is with words. So it's not the cheap solution by any means. We do it because we know the readers love it. And we know that there's such a fantastic range of uh, readers, enthusiasts, contributors, uh, people who might not even pick up the magazine every month, but when they do, they expect high-quality imagery and the best that the, the community's got to offer. So straight answer to a straight question, get in touch with us, airlinerworld at keypublishing.com. Uh, that email address goes to the entire editorial team, and we, we receive literally hundreds of images sometimes a day if there's a you know if something's happened that a lot of people have been able to to spot then you know we will be inundated up you know the the, the presswick uh aircraft a couple of weeks ago you know we i think we received about 200 images from that but uh yeah get in touch with us we review every single image and we will make sure uh to publish the very best we can't publish them all and we do pay for every image that we receive as well so uh, get in touch, Eleanor World at keypublishing.com. I mean, you, you, were met, you were mentioning there, actually, Gordon, obviously, you know, paying for these photographs. But, of course, in, in a time uh, we were sort of saying, I think, at the top of the show, weren't we, where it's uh, people are sort of struggling to gain access to the magazine because of, of lockdown and things. I mean, presumably that's had quite a massive impact on, on the way that, that you're, you know, financing the, the magazine and, and how you're getting it out there. I mean, it must be very challenging at the moment. It is challenging, uh, but we've got a really fantastic band of loyal subscribers uh, right around the world, and they've been even more loyal than they, than they were before. We've seen our subscription numbers increase since lockdown, so we, we've had a really, really encouraging response. And even people who 
bought the magazine at retail before um, and they were no longer able to either because they were shielding or because the shop was closed or for other reasons. Um, they've got in touch and they proactively said, you know, we know you guys are, are part of a, an industry that is hurting along with aviation, mm. along with hospitality, along with a lot of other sectors. Uh, I want to do my bit. I want to um, help you guys out and the easiest way and the best way and the most fulfilling way that uh, many of our readers look to do that is, is through a subscription. So we've been very lucky. We've got that nest egg, if you like, mm. without going into the, the sort of the, the nitty gritty yeah, yeah. details. And that, that really helps us out. And we know that we will be able to sell X number of copies every month, irrespective of uh, some retailers being open or closed. And it's, uh, it's a very, very loyal community. The aviation community, by its very definition, is international. By its very definition, it's a, it's a tight-knit community, even though we are spread far and wide, and even though we're doing quite different things. You know, you could be in the air, you could be on the ground, you could be in a support role. You could be a, a pure enthusiast who does absolutely nothing to do with aviation, Monday to Friday, nine till five, and as soon as you clock off, you're Mr. or Mrs. Plain Nut. Uh, we're here for everyone, and what we've, what, what we've seen over the past six months or so is that our, our band of readers are, are really very, very loyal and uh, have been showing us great support. Indeed. I mean, and uh, that, that's sort of very much echoed from, from our experience, obviously, in the podcasting world. It is very much, it's very much like a family. It's one of those you sort of bump into people at air shows and things. And it, it's just the, as someone who's sort of new to aviation, I suppose, who still really has no idea what this whole plane thing is all about. Uh, it's just been such an amazing sort of community and, and uh, experience. It's, it's just so, so lovely. It really is. So, Gordon, I've got obviously the latest copy of Airliner World here, October's um, copy. How long does it take to put the uh, the whole, you know, the, the issue together? Because obviously you've got um, stories, different stories in the magazine each month. Um, Nev, close your eyes, don't, don't, don't show this, but um, oh. you've got a picture, oh picture of BA, uh, you know, you've got a segment on BA on there this month. Um, <laughs> That's it, upset him. Yeah. I know. <laughs> How long does it take to put... The, the monthly uh, copy together with all the stories and the segments and the interview, you know, the bits and pieces? Yeah, it's a great question. We start planning an issue almost a year out, uh, particularly for some of the longer form stuff. Um, I was trying to think the shortest time we've ever actually went from beginning to end on an issue is two weeks. Uh, but that is the absolute extreme end. And that was where my appendix ruptured last year. I was coming off a press trip with Virgin Atlantic, uh, and it seems like a, an age ago, it was only a year ago, if that, uh, the brand new A350 to New York, um, and they were very, very kind. They, they took a, some press and some colleagues and I think a few other prize winners um, to New York and back, and then I came back, touched down at Heathrow, and uh, no sooner had I arrived back at Terminal 3, my appendix decided to, to play up, but not before I'd flown on Vueling down to Italy and uh, decided to tap into the Italian healthcare system. So I couldn't have had what happened to me happen in those four or five hours it was in the UK. Um, so I spent a week and a half in, in hospital in Italy whilst my exceptional colleague Martin Needham um, took helm in sunny Stanford in Lincolnshire and got the magazine out. That then meant that we were in a pretty tough spot with the f subsequent issue, which we hadn't had time to to get into the normal shape. So, yeah, two weeks is the absolute, you know, I can't think of even doing it, you know, even with an absolute army wow. in any fewer than two weeks. Generally, it's a month. Um, if you look through the hundred or so pages that we have, 
Uh, we've got some longer form features. We've got some breaking news. We've got some analysis. And by definition, if we're doing a piece on the Caravel or on the Viscount, that can be done a couple of months out. There's no, there's no secrets there. And unless something changes in the story, which is very unlikely for a historical piece like that, it's going to be uh, pretty much off the shelf, dusted off, and we can get that in, albeit with the, the very latest images that might have been contributed if someone has caught wind that we've got that feature coming up for the interviews, for the news, for the, uh, you know, the more cutting edge stuff. By definition, magazines are a medium that are always on the back foot, particularly when you're comparing it with, with social media, when you're comparing it with DRSA podcasts, with, uh, with websites, everything else. We're never going to be first. But what we do look to, to having in airliner world in particular is uh, a really solid news digest. And we are updating that right up until the minute that we are forced to go to press to make sure that that story that we've got yeah, in these COVID era times more than ever is as up to date as it possibly can be. And to make sure that our analysis is as sharp as it can be. Also, I think uh, one thing worth mentioning where, where I, I personally feel that me, uh, print media always wins over is because w with something like that, you have time to go into real detail about something like that. And obviously, especially with the publication that you've got there, people will want the nuts and bolts and nitty gritty of a story that perhaps has been mentioned in the news headlines. But obviously, you know, I mean, you used to work in a newsroom. I mean, you know that you're looking at probably anything between 30 and 30 seconds and two minutes for each um, story and, and that just isn't enough time to go into detail especially with a subject matter like aviation absolutely and that was one of the things that sort of spurred my interest to go into aviation journalism it was the fact that you are able to go into proper long-form features you are able to really geek out specialize and speak to an audience that really understands what you're talking about um, but it's not just about you know, the specialist, it's not just about the enthusiast audience, it's about the more general audience as well. And the Airliner World magazine readership is an incredibly broad church, and we are speaking to people that work day in, day out in the industry. We're speaking to all age groups, all backgrounds. Our international reach is, is immense. Um, yeah, I think last count we were in 150 countries plus. Uh, that's in terms of being able to be sold, never mind subscriptions and other other bits and pieces like that. So what we do have to do is make sure that we're not dumbing down the features that could potentially be dumbed down, and we're not equally putting in loads of jargon that will alienate a slightly more general audience. So it, it is a uh, quite a fine balance to strike, but the editors that have come before me, Craig West, Tony Dixon, and, and others, they've, they've set a really, really strong foundation. And uh, yeah, all I'm doing is keeping that legacy going and uh, making sure that we are delivering the best possible product each month. Nev, we've got a question in the chat room from Jacob Darlington-Brown, haven't we? Yes, we have. And uh, Jacob asks, is this just a UK uh, magazine or is it available in other parts of the world? Yeah, no, we are published in the UK and we, you, you could argue that we have a, a European centricity, if not a UK centricity, but we are truly global. We are airliner world in name and uh, in reality. We're sold all around the world, so I'm not quite sure where that particular viewer or listener is based, but you know, you'll find us in Barnes & Noble in the US, you'll find us in Indigo in, in Canada, you'll find us in uh, specialist news agents all around the world. If you're passing through an airport, a major airport, I guarantee you we will be in the Smiths or the, the Hudson News or the equivalent there, 
Uh, and if you aren't able to find us, then look online, uh, the, the Key Publishing Shop. Go to key.aero. Uh, you've got all the information there. But we are truly global, and I think by most metrics, we are the world's biggest selling commercial aviation magazine. Indeed. And uh, we've also got one from Alan White, Nev. Uh, yes, um, my chat room's going a bit slow today. Uh, Alan asks, uh, as the world gets more and more digital, are there plans to do more video content to suit the change in consumer appetite for different forms of media? Don't get me wrong, he says, I still want magazine copies. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's something that I actually mentioned at my interview. Uh, a couple of years ago, I said, yeah, this is a great magazine, but we do need to bring it kicking and screaming into the 20th century. And I'm not talking about 20... 18 as it was then. I'm talking about you know, just bringing it into 2005. It was not a, uh, a title that really had, had moved with the digital revolution. And we are doing that. We really are. And the, the pandemic has been a catalyst for that. So we have invested hugely in key.aero. That's K-E-Y, as in key publishing. Um, fans of military, historic aviation, they might be familiar with fly past, aeroplane, um, combat aircraft, Hornby, Hornby rather, uh, buses, all sorts of, of magazines related to the transport sector, aviation sector, uh, as well as some other specialist titles. Uh, they all come together under Key.Aero, um, and there's been huge investment there. So we are doing more audio, we're doing more video, we're doing more digital-first content, uh, and we're also upgrading our, our social media. You could argue it's a little bit too late, you know, ahead of, um, you know, behind, rather, uh, some of our, our direct competitors and indirect competitors, but we are getting there. Uh, and I would encourage anyone that loves the magazine, loves what we're doing in the print version, either Airline or World or some of our other titles, to take a look online uh, and give us a fresh look. Because even in the past six to nine months, it has been quite transformative. So, Gordon, what would you say has been one of the best aviation experiences that you've had um, since working uh, on the aviation side with Key Publishing? I joined two years ago, and obviously 2020 has been a bit of a... A write-off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let, let's, let, let's describe the first 18 months of my key publishing career, <laughs> Darwin. Um, I was able to get a fantastic experience in January of last year with Vidaro, the Norwegian carrier. Um, I'm a big fan of turboprops. I'm a big fan of anyone that's getting to places that otherwise are unreachable. And Vidaro do both. Uh, I'm from Aberdeen in Scotland, and we've got a big Vidaro uh, scene. So Spanger, uh, Bergen, uh, with the Dash 8s, and also now with the, the Embryo E-Jets. And they are just the most incredible airline. I was able to fly into Bergen and then basically take the equivalent of an aeronautical bus all the way up to the Russian border. And you think Tromso is far north. It's not. You can go another two, three hours north of Tromso. Um, and we did it all on the Dash 100, 200, 300, and 400. Um, and it was just the most phenomenal trip. We did it all in a day, um, and we did it all in January, which isn't the brightest time of year in Aberdeen. It's not the brightest time of year in the extreme Arctic Circle either. Um, and when we arrived in Alta in, in northern Norway, there was a bit of a hubbub in the airport, and I, I asked the, uh, the uh, PR representative who was from Vidaro in Oslo, who was joining me on the trip, and she was thinking, what on earth have you got me into? But she was enjoying it nonetheless. And I asked her, I said, you know, as, as a Norwegian, what, you know, what's going on here? And she said, they're celebrating daylight has returned. <laughs> so the week prior to my arrival, it was dark 
and it was really dark. And I said, well, you know, how, how, how little daylight are we talking? And she said, the, the sun hadn't been up since November. <laughs> and this was January. Right. So, it's a um, long time dark. <laughs> I can see why she recommended the last week of January for my trip and not the week before. Because <laughs> the, uh, the week before would have been very dark indeed in my photography which is patchy at best, would have been even worse without my night vision camera. <laughs> I can um, imagine. But, yeah, but being able to go, uh, particularly on the really, really, really far north, you know, with 100 and 200 series, right up to the Russian border, and to sit in the jump seat for a couple of those final legs, wow. uh, it was absolutely remarkable to be able to speak to these pilots and landing in incredibly short runways with this fantastic aircraft uh, in the middle of deepest, darkest winter, it was it was a phenomenal experience and something you would never be able to to uh, experience as a as a layman and it was a real privilege and honor to be able to, to turn that into copy and to then translate that into uh, something that i hope the readers enjoyed wow so nev you've got another question yes i mean per, just personally speaking uh, gordon i think the journalism uh, everything that you do in the magazine is absolutely top notch it is really well researched but then I compare that to some of the, um, well, how shall I say this, aviation analysts and other people on the broadcast. Careful, you'll get, you'll get blocked. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you Before, say the name, we'll get blocked. <laughs> reporting to be experts. I'm just really disappointed in how the broadcast journalists have, have gone about aviation um, and the reporting of aviation. Um, what, what's your opinion on that? It's a great question. It's one that I've got experience on both sides of the coin on. I used to be a broadcast journalist and I've worked for the biggest rolling news channel in the UK. And I know how it feels to want to get the story out there. And I know that people tune in when they've heard that something has gone wrong or potentially gone wrong. Um, I was in the newsroom when MH17 went down and... I think I was probably the only aviation enthusiast in the room. And I was able to, once I sort of caught whisper that there was something going down, um, literally, forgive the, mm. the, the play on words there. Um, I, I was, you know, sort of went onto my geeky websites and all my niche stuff compared to the, what my mainstream colleagues were doing. And uh, I said, yeah, that, I'm pretty sure that was MH17. Um, and it was coming from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur and uh, it went down over Ukraine. And yeah, my very senior colleague, he said, how confident are you? Can we get that on straight away? And that's you know, the UK's most watched rolling news channel. I knew that once that goes out, that's, yeah. that's the story out. Yeah. Um, Reuters still hadn't confirmed it. And some of the big news agencies still hadn't confirmed it. And there was a real dilemma there. And you're thinking, yes, you know, 99%. It's, it's you're that, you're you know, pretty cross, sure, cross, yeah. Yeah, I, I've personally cross-referenced all of my you know, my various sources and I've dotted the I's, I've crossed the T's, but it's different. It's not just you saying, yeah, it's, it's probably that, you know, you've got a whole extra level of responsibility, but that also gave me an indication as to the, you know, the, the understanding that if this had happened, it would be one of the biggest stories of the year and the network wanted to be on top of it. Yeah. And it was, uh, it, it was fascinating. And I, I said, I'm sure, but I'm not sure enough for it to go live yet yeah. um and you know we had a discussion and you know we waited for corroborative evidence and it corroborated what i thought what had happened thought, yeah. um which was refreshing um and it <laughs> was it was reassuring but it was still the right decision uh but then breaking the news is one thing it's then 
to put it very crudely, filling the time. Yeah. And people are still tuning in and they expect new developments. And particularly if it's a, an incident that is in a part of the world that we're not familiar with, or we don't necessarily have social media footage of mm. straight away, we don't have tweets, we don't have eyewitnesses, there's a bit of a vacuum. And that's when you start to bring in the speculators. And that's when you start to bring in those who are making themselves available and it's not really for me to, to, to say whether that's right or not, but the, there are those out there who, who are happy to share their opinions and share their say on a, a very, very, very young incident, accident, crash, whatever it may be. It's, um, it's not my style. Um, it's not what I like to do, but I appreciate there is a, there's an audience for it and there is uh, a, a certain type of person that isn't afraid of, of sharing what they think might have happened and what could have happened. Indeed. Um, uh, Tony so, S is actually sort of backing you up a little bit there. He's saying, I guess there's so much pressure to get the story out quickly. It's understandable perhaps why mistakes are sometimes made. Um, you know, that's... Yeah, you, you, you would hope to minimise mistakes, certainly at a, a broadcast journalism level. Um, certainly with regards to online news, it's easy to take away a bit of copy, refresh the page. People are far less likely to, to screenshot a news article, but they're very happy to, to rewind iPlayer or yeah. rewind <laughs> Sky Plus and say, look at again this, how they've just again. made. I suppose the frustration from, from, from our point of view, obviously, is, I mean, we're very lucky that what we do here, we come across people who really do know about the industry. And I guess the problem here is those people are not willing, understandably, until they have all the facts, if you like, to put their name to it and their neck on the line as where some people who perhaps you know aren't quite so um uh, i'm not sure what the word I, I, is that i'm looking for you know but it's more about the exposure i suppose for them and they'll risk saying something on the air and as you say i suppose in defense of bbc sky um itv because uh, they, they all tend to use the sort of same pool of experts um i suppose it, 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 they're stuck between a rock and a hard place and you know because they, they want to try and be breaking as much of the story as soon as they can but it's not necessarily thing about i mean nev you you've got a real sort of hate about this haven't you because i mean a lot of the, 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 the tabloid newspapers especially uh, are notoriously bad at talking about an A380 and then putting up a picture of a 747 and, and things like <laughs> That's that. standard stuff really, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I think we've, uh, it, during the, the last few minutes, we've very skillfully danced around uh, and not mentioning anyone's names as well, which was absolutely brilliant. I know, didn't we do well? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is... Um, yeah. Now, and of course, before 24-hour news channels uh, were around, of course, this wasn't a problem um, because this is before the internet as well in many cases. So, yeah, things have changed a, a lot and the public's appetite for new information um, is very great. Um, and I was just going back to when the Kegworth disaster happened um, in, uh, with the, the British Midland. 77400 that crashed at East Midlands Airport, or just just uh, short of East Midlands Airport, in fact, in the in the village of Kekworth. The, the amount of time the information took to come out, because obviously it was a, it was a live event, but this was you know before internet, before the breaking news and all the rest of it. And I remember exactly where I was. I was down the local pub when it all happened. I didn't you know no one found anything about it, 
until they got back home uh, and watched it, watched some of it on the news. But um, yeah, I mean, fact checking and trying to get the facts right, um, trying not to make a, a mess of it. it, it it's very challenging. Uh, and I, I'm sure that, you know, the fundamentals of journalism, you know, is sort of uh, you know, carved into Gordon. But it, it is, I'm sure it must be very tempting from time to time when you are so sure of your facts, but it's just not corroborated by another source or one or more sources that you, you can't be confident in putting story out. Absolutely, Nevin. You know, just speaking about YouTube briefly, uh, it was Michael Burke that evening on the, on the news flash, and it, it, it is on YouTube and I watch it. I find myself somehow watching it <laughs> you know, probably once every six months, the, the, the Kegworth disaster news flash. And you know, an acknowledgement that they didn't have all the facts, but the facts they did have, I think they said it was a DC-9. I think that was the only thing they got wrong. Um, but Michael Burke, with absolute professionalism, with all the technology that the 80s didn't have, yeah. they were able to get an eyewitness on the phone, they were able to get a map up, they were able to get a remarkably accurate first-hand account Ca of that incident. Yeah. Um, and I encourage anyone who hasn't seen it uh, to, to watch it on YouTube. It's, it's easy to find. I don't know if you can put the link up. Yeah, um, but it, 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 it gives me goosebumps to watch, but it, it's, a, it's a masterclass with extremely limited technology that they had back then in how to report a story. These are the facts. This is what's happened more when it comes. Indeed, it's 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 one of those. Uh, so going back to um, the, uh, the the sort of print media that obviously you're you're now involved in. I mean, in some respects, it must be nice almost to sort of I won't say you have time uh, to sit down and research it, but you you know you, before you print, you have you can at least make sure you've got as much information together as you can. With this whole um, sort of COVID thing, I mean. <sighs> One of the things we've been trying to do as a podcast is trying not to like talk about that subject. You know, it's a huge part of aviation. However you dress it up, it's just been catastrophic to the industry. And and we've tried very hard to sort of try and pick the lighter stories, try and find things that are a little bit more fun that are aviation based. Try. I mean, is yeah. is the try being the option? We're very rarely successful. I have I have to be honest because there is an awful lot of doom and gloom out there. I mean, is that something that I mean? Obviously, you've got to mention it because it's got to be done. But I mean, are you are you trying? to sort of stay away from the negative as best as you can or I mean is it just simply not possible as as things are at the moment yeah it's a great question you you can't sugarcoat COVID there's absolutely no way you can do that and it would be an insult frankly to our audience because so many of our readers are involved in the industry they're not involved in the industry they're directly employed in the industry and they know better than anyone what's going on because they've been put on furlough they've had their pay cuts they've had their uh, jobs potentially put at risk, if not lost completely. So people need to know that we know that that's going on. At the same time, you don't want to fill 108 pages with doom and gloom. So we tell the story as it is. We try and get the very best analysis, the very best voices to share what is needed. But at the same time, people do use our magazines, be it Airline World, be it Airports of the World, be it Air International, be it any of the key publishing portfolio. They use it as a, as a conduit to escape. And there's a reason why people pick up a magazine each month um, or every two months. They need to have a reason to pick it up again. And if they come to the end of that magazine and think, well, that was nice, but it didn't tell me anything I didn't already know, or that was nice, but it was just 108 pages of absolute doom and gloom, chances are they're not going to be rushing to pick it up again. So we need to have a really rich tapestry of pieces celebrating aviation and 
you know, the plans that we had for the September issue in January are not the plans that actually translated into the September issue. I think we probably kept about one feature of the dozen or so that actually make it into the magazine. Things have changed just so radically. Interviews, features, trips, insights, anything you can imagine that you had planned, penciled in, even sort of a, a, on a long leash in January have absolutely been turned upside down. Our job is to reflect the industry as it is, but also have an understanding why people buy the magazine and they're looking for a celebration. 25 years of the 777. It's the DC-10 and the, 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 the TriStar's 50th towards the end of the year. Qantas are turning 100 in uh, November. There's so much to celebrate. And even in these darkest of hours, our readers are hoping that we will uh, celebrate that with them. And it would be a complete travesty if we were to to just fill the, the magazine with page upon page of, of really negative news. This is a, an opportunity to really uplift the community and not do it in a way that pretends what's going on isn't going on, but it's uh, it's part of a, a really rich package of, of features, analysis and news. Yeah. Nev, you've I, got... I, I'm uh, into that, yeah. <laughs> You've got a question from uh, Jacob Darlington-Brown. Yes, uh, Jacob asked in the chat room, uh, Gordon, what was your best-selling edition and what was in it that made it best-selling? Uh, I've only been with the magazine for two years, so I, I can't really reflect too far back, but my best-selling issue uh, since I took leadership was the British Airways special last year. So we were able to get uh, you know, fantastic access with British Airways. We worked closely with them going right back to... Uh, when the BOAC 747 first arrived back in March through to um, you know, the, the following uh, three, the, the Negus and the, uh, the Landor liveries and the BEA liveries, looking at all of those. And then it all culminated in our August issue last year, which had a beautiful jumbo on the front, special content inside, going right back to AT&T, not the American telecoms operator, but air transport and travel, um, and really digging into the BA archive and being able to see uh, what the foundations of this company were. And there's people that say, hang on a minute, it's not a centenary. I went back to 1974. Yes, you could argue that. And, you know, I do agree with, with, with part of that. But, you know, just taking the centenary for what the centenary is and just, you know, avoiding the, the technicalities, if you will, just let it celebrate its hundredth um, for, what, for what it could be and what it was. Uh, it, it was a fantastic issue. We were able to speak to a former cabin crew member. We were able to speak to a former captain. We were able to speak to a former engineer. Um, the historians had their say. The future guys had their say. We looked at Concord and everything in between. Um, and all the parts came together. It was a beautiful issue. Uh, it was summer, and generally summer time is when we get uh, a slight peak in sales because people are traveling through airport, people who maybe fly only once or twice a year. They're going to the train station. They're going to the airport. They're picking up our magazine. Um, so it was sort of a... A, a double win in that sense. And uh, I, I think even our, our key publishing warehouse, which usually keeps some of the back issues, is completely sold out to the point whereby there was a, a round robin email that went around late last year saying, if you have any of this issue in your drawers, in your filing cabinets, please declare it to the <laughs> warehouse team because we are desperate to sell them. Wow. I mean, you cut you, you. I mean, it's it's uh, it's great to have a story like that. I suppose that's that's grabbed grabbed the imagination that you you can't can't sort of sell. Then you sort of you think, I wish we'd printed another hundred thousand copies. You know. <laughs> oh, you're telling you're, you're telling me. But then there's the, sometimes I won't name any particular issues. But there's one you think that's a banker. 
That will yeah. do really well, and it absolutely plummets. Yeah. So you... <laughs> it's the nature of the beast. Nature of the beast. So, Gordon, a uh, couple of questions before we finish, before we wrap up. We're going to leave uh, the, the best question till last, which Nev's got uh, hidden away for you. But, oh, yeah. uh, Gordon, have you got any tips at all for anyone listening who might want to get into aviation journalism? Yeah, it's, it's not as hard as it used to be. Um, I don't know if Nev can enlighten us about how it used to be in the in, in the olden days about how to to get into aviation journalism. But we've got an opportunity here with the internet and with social media and an ability to write for ourselves if nobody else. So in the in the old days, writing for yourself would be putting on a scrap bit of paper and putting it on the wall of a busy corridor or something. I don't know. It would be, you know, going on some pirate radio station or desperately writing into a magazine and hoping to uh, get your letter published. Mm. Nowadays, everyone can publish. Everybody can, in theory at least, get an audience. And um, I would say the proliferation of outlets, particularly online, is is really encouraging. And there's a lot of opportunities for people who haven't got, necessarily got a journalism background to get involved. So I would say write about what you're passionate about because that will come through in your writing write about something that you are able to share an insight in that necessarily others might not. So if you do live in a part of the country that is close to an airport that not many spotters get to or not many enthusiasts get to or not many journalists get to, write about it. Look for your USP, look for your unique selling point. Um, and it might be that you live in the Orkney Islands and you think, God, no one's going to care about this, but actually it's got the world's shortest scheduled air route. Yeah. Everybody wants to know about that. Um, so look for the story within and try and sell that. If you are looking uh, beyond you know, a personal blog or something like that, then um, do consider reaching out to websites. What I found when I was uh, a student journalist is that actually people are surprisingly receptive. Look at the website and look at the people behind the website. So it's not always a case of going to the generic uh, you know, info at email address. Go on LinkedIn, look at who's, Who's, Actually, who, the brains who, yeah. behind the website, um, and yeah, particularly some of the bigger players, um, and drop them a personal note and say, "This is what I do. This is what I can write about. This is my pitch." Uh, and actually, I, I personally found that it was an incredibly um, effective way of trying to get your your work out there. But um, I would say anyone that's listening, anyone that's watching, who's got a real passion for aviation and wants to to share that with a wider audience, get in touch with me directly, airlinerworld at keeppublishing.com. We do have a really dedicated pool of contributors. Uh, we've got an in-house writing team, editorial team as well, but it would be foolish for me as an editor to turn my nose up at anyone that approached me who said, I've got a great story, I've got a great insight, I've got a great idea, or even if they've got a great idea, but they haven't got the means to actually put that into reality. Sometimes we can be uh, that linchpin that can turn an idea into a fantastic 10-page feature. Indeed. Well, I mean, uh, Richard Adams in the chat room here is actually offering, uh, you know, he's offering his CV saying that he's got his hat, he's got his goggles and his quill is all primed and ready to go. So uh, there we are. That's uh, he's uh, ready to go. <laughs> he's ready to send in his first <laughs> that's, article. That's, that's one thing. I, I think, yeah, I was born at a wrong time because I wanted to be in the 1930s when he had those press hats. <laughs> 
you know, with yeah, the feather yeah. coming out. <laughs> and then yeah. after, the, after the press conference, you could run up to the telephones that yeah. were flanked on the back of the wall and say, what a scoop. I've got a story for you, see? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I, I know we're different times. Hey? But, I mean, Nev's old enough to remember those times, right? Uh, not quite. No, 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 no. I know I'm getting on a bit, but it doesn't, doesn't quite go back there. He's going to be very mean. While you're in the chair, sir, we have one final question that we ask anyone that comes on the show, and it's a bit of a stinker for, for some anyway. Yeah, sorry, Gordon, you've had no warning of this question whatsoever, but uh, see how you get on. Uh, if you could fly any aircraft uh, in the world, either current or retired or decommissioned, uh, military or commercial or GA, what would it be? It's a great question. Um, off the top of my head, I think you know, the 707s we were discussing at the very start of the show, there's something very, very special about that. The design, the interior, and the fact that that really propelled the world into the jet age. Um, that, that would be one that I would, I would jump on board. It wouldn't be the most comfortable. It wouldn't be the, the quietest. It wouldn't have the bells and whistles that some of the others did. But uh, to be on the aircraft that really created the industry that we know and love today, that would be uh, a unique opportunity, one I wouldn't be able to turn down. I think that's, a, that's one we haven't had before. That's a great choice as well, isn't it? Absolutely superb. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, very well refreshing. Done. There we go. Well, uh, unfortunately, guys, it is time to sort of start uh, wrapping up the interview. We've got one more thing that still needs to be done, and that is this week's episode of The Plain Truth. And this week, uh, I am joined by the legend that is Captain Al, and we're talking about the highways of the skies. <laughs> Welcome to another Plain Truths, and this week we are going to be talking about the highways in the sky. Joining me, as always, is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi, Captain Al. Hi, Matt. How are things? Oh, very good, thank you. Yes, uh, not entirely dissimilar to when we recorded last time, I'll be honest, but uh, <laughs> there, there, there we go. Uh, now, listen, this is going to be a slightly, it's going to be sound like a ridiculously easy question for you, but one of those things that's always been in the back of my mind here. Uh, if, for example, you were, I'm going to use, I'm going to say London. So say you were taking off in London, we can say London Luton, if you prefer. Uh, if we're going to take off in, say, Luton, and we were off to Madrid, um, is there like a, a pre pre-arranged or pre-agreed route or can the pilot literally uh plan the route that he wants to take or she wants to take in order to get to madrid okay well i'm glad that you've chosen luton there because obviously one of the first things that we have to navigate is the m1 and then we've got the do we go clockwise or anti-clockwise around the m25 that's the conundrum then <laughs> I, okay. I see what you did there, yes. Okay. I digress. So, to go from uh, London Luton to Madrid, we have to decide whether we're going to go VFR or IFR. Okay. All Visual right. flight rules or instrument flight rules. Oh, okay. So, so, if we're going to go VFR, which would be predominantly the domain of light aircraft, uh, you are navigating in sight of the ground with a map and a compass and a stopwatch or some sort of GPS device. And you will just basically go pretty much in a straight line if there wasn't controlled airspace to navigate around. If you're going to go IFR, instrument flight rules, then you have to comply with predetermined procedures. 
So when we leave Luton, I think most people will agree that Madrid is to the south of London. So we want to end up taking off and then heading to the south. Now, the runway at Luton is east-west, so we're going to have to make a turn in one direction or the other, depending on which way we depart. That will be determined by the wind on the day. So there are something called SIDS, Standard Instrument Departures, and they are prescribed routes that will take you off a given runway to a given navigation point that will feed you, roughly speaking, in the direction you want to go. So we want to go southbound, so we would file in our flight plan a departure that will take us to a southbound navigational point. And then that joins us up with the airways network that is all around the world. And these are effectively highways or motorways in the sky. And these are routes that we will follow to get from London to Madrid. Now, it's fair to say that relatively speaking, they're designed to take you from major city to major city uh, in much the same way as highways are. But obviously one of the things that we have to do is we have to account for people coming in the opposite direction. So we will have some highways, some airways that are bi-directional and some that are uh, single direction. So northbound only, southbound only. So once we've joined up with the airways system. We will go through the airways and then we have to have some mechanism to be streamed into Madrid because Madrid's in the middle of Spain. So aircraft will be arriving from the north, the south, the east and the west and all points in between. And quite clearly air traffic control needs some sort of way of organizing this so that we just don't, don't all arrive together and fight it out uh, to see who can get their towel on the deck chair first. <laughs> so we have something called a standard terminal arrival route, a star. So from our airways, we will join a star that will then take us to our landing runway. So that's how that works. Now, we've become quite advanced in Europe. So a lot of countries now, rather than having to fly these airways will basically clear you from one point on their border to the point uh, where you leave their airspace. So it's called free airspace. So it's a lot more direct than it was in the past. So we're spending less time in the air. It's more efficient. And the reason that they're able to do this, of course, is because these, these airways were all designed uh, in a period of time before radar was common. Obviously, we had radar in the Second World War, but within civilian aviation use, it's uh, become uh, a relatively modern phenomena. So uh, to give you uh, an example, uh, if we were to fly a little bit further and go down to the Canary Islands, we might fly through uh, the airspace of Morocco, so speak to Casablanca Control, and it's only in the last five years that they've had radar there. So when I say it's a relatively modern thing, the invention goes back a long time, but the implementation of it is still relatively modern. There are large parts of Africa without radar. So where we have radar and good radar coverage, uh, we've able in recent years to instigate this, this free airspace. 
which makes it more efficient for airliners to fly. It's a much straighter line. Um, traditionally, um, there are many ways of getting from uh, London to Madrid. So logically, you might think, okay, well, we take off from London, uh, turn south. Okay, well, we've got Heathrow and Gatwick down there, so we've got to be slotted through there. So we'll typically head towards sort of Southampton on the south coast of the UK, uh, chunter down to the west of Paris, head down towards sort of Toulouse, um, a quick cross of the Alps into Spain or maybe a little bit further west and across the Cantabrians and, uh, you know, attack Madrid from the north. Uh, that's fine. And there are a number of routes that will do that. Uh, if it's the summer, then French air traffic control may well be on strike. <laughs> so it's maybe necessary to go a different route. So there are airways that will uh, take you uh, out of London, uh, head west uh, towards either the southwest coast of Wales or down towards Land's End. Uh, then you continue to fly out west until you reach Southern Ireland. Uh, then you'll do a hard left turn, turn down to the south, avoiding all of France, and then sort of attacking Spain from the bit where it adjoins Portugal. Now, that obviously adds to the flight time, uh, but when the French are on strike, that's a necessity. So uh, I don't know if you can use this expression anymore. I know you'll be bracing yourself, but there is more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> right, OK. Uh, and just just a, just a apropos pro of nothing, really. So, I mean, who sets the highways of the skies? Is this, uh, were, uh, were these sort of like predetermined routes that go back so, over years, or was it like yeah, uh, agreed I mean, routes the, with air, air, airlines? Or? Um they, they, many of the, the airways within the UK go back uh, certainly to uh, the 1930s. Um, and there were probably about 10 or so airways at that point, and they were given colours. Uh, there was Amber was one, so Amber 25, uh, which is the one that goes down through Wales. Um, and as time has gone on, they're all... Uh, numbered, so um, you know, becomes up in November eight to seven, for example. Um, some of the airways uh, off uh, the coast of Ireland are Tango routes, so Tango nine, uh, Tango twelve, Tango fourteen, Tango sixteen, um, and they are typically put together by the state who own that airspace. So uh, the UK will plan their airways, but of course we're part of a a bigger network, which is Eurocontrol. And so lots of people spend inordinate amounts of time in offices planning these routes. And uh, I don't have a chart to hand, but if I was to show you a paper chart, it is just a mass of lines. Right. Uh, there are so many airways across Europe. Um, but, of course, we are quite an interconnected continent. Wow. I, I, I mean, there's so many... So many things that you don't really you take into consideration, I suppose, as just a humble passenger. Um, you know, the, the the planning and stuff involved. And I, I I had heard stories of people. You know, for example, because of uh, we'll say an an incident an incident going on in France, like striking, for example, where you've then got to avoid. But also, I mean, presumably those, those same rules uh, apply. For example, where I think was it was it in Iceland where we had um, um, uh, volcanoes erupting and things like. And obviously, that airspace then has to be avoided. Uh, presumably, uh, taking yes. different routes as a result. Results. 
Uh, we can do volcanic ash in another episode if oh. you like, but yes, absolutely right. Um, where where there are concentrations of volcanic uh, volcanic ash, then that airspace is effectively closed. So there has to be ways of getting around that. So uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, sometimes the the routings uh, from A to B are far from a straight line. Uh, they're not logical, uh, but quite often they're a result of uh, capacity issues. So say, for example, um, if a new air traffic control system is being installed, let's just say, uh, I don't know, just pick somewhere, uh, just, I don't know, let's just say in, in Hungary, in Budapest. So Budapest is quite central within Central Europe. A lot of flights will fly through uh, Hungarian airspace on their way down to Turkey and uh, Asia, and obviously a lot of uh, east-west Europe flights. So if the air traffic controllers are having a new computer system there, uh, they obviously need time to learn it, get used to it. So initially, they won't be able to operate as the same number of flights as they would do normally. So they will reduce their capacity, which means that the uh, airways through uh, Hungary uh, have the ability to take less aircraft, so they become congested. So therefore, the airways around that area of Europe uh, will take up the, the, the burden, so they become more congested. You can kind of see the domino effect. And within Europe, uh, you will probably be familiar with the fact that COVID-19 aside, during the summer, there will be air traffic control slots. Uh, these are calculated calculated takeoff times, uh, a small window of time that you have to be airborne in. And this is basically the Euro control system looking at your flight, comparing it with all of the other flights around Europe that are using the airways that you're on and trying to basically manage the capacity across the airways and the air traffic control units such that we don't end up with too much in the way of airborne holding and we don't end up with sector saturation, which is basically too many aircraft for the controller to deal with. So, and, and it's the controller essentially that sets the separation between you and and other aircraft, if you like. So, so what's happening there when you're in cruise, for example? Who's who's keeping an eye on who's where then? That's air traffic control. Okay, right. So you essentially so you're in it, contact with air traffic control the whole time, somewhere yes. in the world. Yeah. Well. If we contain it to the more patchy, in so much as, in theory, it exists, but uh, communications are very difficult. Uh, we're talking about countries that may be in civil war. Uh, we're talking about countries that don't have much investment in their infrastructure. So uh, we typically communicate uh, with VHF radio and sometimes it's very difficult to communicate with air traffic control because either there's no one there or the, their equipment is so poorly maintained that, uh, that we can't hear them or they can't hear uh, us. So in large swathes of Africa, uh, aircraft will speak to each other on a dedicated frequency. And what you will do is you will plot the position of aircraft around you and form your own separation, if you like. So we will fly off the airway or above or below the airway to increase separation. 
but in the majority of uh, the Western world, uh, it's air traffic control who are providing the separation. So it may be by radar, so that would be the case across Europe, uh, most of the United States. In areas where there isn't radar, so for example, um, across the oceans, so the North Atlantic, the South Atlantic, there isn't radar coverage, they will use something called time-based separation. So if you have an aeroplane that flies at, let's just say, 0.8 max, so 0.8 of the speed of sound, and 10 minutes later you have a second aircraft that also flies at the same speed, logically, when they reach the other side of the Atlantic, they will be 10 minutes apart because right. they've maintained the same speed. So when you're flying across the Atlantic, you will fly a constant speed, a constant Mach number, so it's time-based separation. And also then they apply lateral separation, so, um, so you're not bumping into each other, if you like, because there is no radar. But there is air traffic control. It's just that they use a different form of uh, separation. So over... But, uh, over land, it would be typically radar. So the blips are separated by the, the guy who's looking at the upturned dustbin lid. And um, That's a technical term, right? <laughs> it is, yeah. And um, they will provide the, the separation because whilst we have these airways, air traffic controllers will take aircraft off the airways to try to give them shortcuts or to uh, increase separation or to reduce their workload. So uh, we're, not, we're not trains, we're not stuck to the rails. Um, the, the, the airways are a planning structure, but quite often you will receive uh, shortened routings, revised routings, um, shortcuts, because if the air traffic controller is in a position to give you a shortcut, even if it takes you into adjoining airspace so for example um, if you're flying as I mentioned earlier across uh, Hungary and your route then takes you through Romania um, and then down towards Turkey uh, the Hungarian controller will speak on the telephone to the Romanian controller and say we've got you know sky one two three can I clear him to your boundary point and the controller will go yes I'm quiet so the Hungarian controller will clear you not to his boundary with Romania, but clear you to the boundary of Romania and the next country. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's it's such a uh, complicated. You, you, again, it's one of those things you don't take into. You don't really sort of think that. Uh, uh, it, I, I know. I know it would be complicated if that makes sense. But uh, uh, there's so much planning involved that you don't take into consideration as a humble passenger. There is a lot of planning. Um, and uh, we can certainly look at planning for a for a future episode. So there's a lot of planning. Suffice to say, it's all done by computers these days, yeah. um, because when we're looking at Europe, um, there are all of the routes that are available, but they're not available necessarily 24/7. Some are only available in the evenings at night time. Some are only available at the weekends. So there is a document called the route availability document. So the computer systems will look at this and see what routes are available. Then it will look to see what delays are incurred by using these routes, the slots. Um, and it will do a balancing act between whether it's better to fly a more fuel efficient route and in, incur a 10 minute delay 
or whether it's better to go a, a longer route but with less delay. So it becomes quite complicated. And there is a, um, a misnomer from the general public that when we're sat in the cruise, nothing is happening. You know, the autopilot's <laughs> flying. Yeah. But we're continuously uh, modifying our route. Uh, we're trying to get you from A to B quickly. So we'll be proactive in trying to uh, get shortened routings. And, of course, that's before we've even got onto the subject of avoiding weather because <laughs> weather will intervene in, in any plans of, you know, man or mouse. Indeed, absolutely. Well, there's a couple of great topics there that I think we need to come back to. But for now, Captain Al, thank you. It's a pleasure. Oh, and genuinely, guys, uh, thanks, Al, as always. It's been a real pleasure to do this particular series with him. Uh, genuinely, guys, if you've got any questions that you would like Captain Al to answer for you, please do send in those details of the question that you want answered and the legend that is Captain Al will answer it for you. And uh, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Podcast at plaintalkinguk.com is the email address. On our website, www.plaintalkinguk.com, you can go on to the contact us page on there you can fill in the form and send in the details or you can send it to us in whatsapp the number is plus four four seven five seven uh two two four nine one six six that's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six and of course uh, don't forget to search for us on social media by looking for the tag plain talking uk i think that's all the socials isn't it carlos Yes, and also don't forget, if you do download the podcast as an audio version and you use uh, iTunes, for instance, if you've got five minutes spare and you want to just give us a quick review, that would be absolutely awesome because Indeed. we do actually, like well, a nice we're, review. We're talking about uh, socials, actually. Gordon, how can everybody get in touch with you, certainly as far as the magazine and your good self is concerned? We are a print magazine, but we are digital. So uh, on Twitter, we are... At underscore airliner world, slightly awkward, but uh, <laughs> that's the way it is. Um, we are facebook.com forward slash airliner world, much easier. We're on Instagram as well, airliner world, and we have our shiny new website, key.aero. That's the entire domain, K E Y dot A E R O. And that's the umbrella website for military, for historic aviation, and for commercial. Uh, from all the key publishing titles. We'll make sure all those details are in the show notes. So if you're listening to the audio version of the show, all that information will be available to you in there. Carlos, we better wrap up pretty quick because it's... We uh, certainly do. It's been a long so, old show. It's been so much fun, though. Gordon, big, thank you so much. Fun. Thank you, yeah. yeah. Big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room this evening uh, watching the show. Big thanks to everyone in there. It's been great to see you all in there on this Friday evening. And also a big thanks to everyone who obviously downloads our show as an audio version. And uh, a big thanks to all the hosts tonight. Uh, thanks to uh, Nev and uh, obviously Matt for all the hard work and for obviously our producer as well, John, for all his hard work as well in putting the show together. So big thanks to you, John. And uh, not forgetting as well, Armando, for all his hard work. We've missed you this week, Armando. Looking forward to having you back next week. And also, uh, we must mention as well, a big thanks to Captain Nick and Ian Palmer as well for their special segment. And not forgetting as well this week, a massive, massive thanks to Gordon Smith for joining us on the show this week. So, Gordon, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for taking time out of your Friday evening and, uh, and coming on the show with us tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, for me, Carlos here 
in the PTUK studio at home, in my home, and from Matt over in the master Hi, everybody. PTUK studio, from Nev in the NevTech studios, and uh, from, well, from all of us here at the show. Have a great week. Stay safe, and see you all next Friday. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.